BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 41. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. The Destruction of Sennacherib, I Remember, I Remember, and Driving Home the Cows. Part 4 continued. The Destruction of Sennacherib. The Destruction of Sennacherib by Lord Byron finds a place in this collection because Johnny, a ten-year-old, and many of his friends say... It's great. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea, when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when the summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen, like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast, and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed, and the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved, and forever grew still. And there lay the steed, with his nostril all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride, and the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf, and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail, and the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal, and the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. Lord Byron I remember, I remember. I remember, I remember, the house where I was born, the little window where the sun came peeping in at morn. He never came a wink too soon, nor brought too long a day, but now I often wish the night had borne my breath away. I remember, I remember, the roses red and white, the violets and the lily cups, those flowers made of light. THE LILACS WHERE THE ROBIN BUILT, AND WHERE MY BROTHER SET THE LABERNUM ON HIS BIRTHDAY, THE TREE IS LIVING YET. I REMEMBER, I REMEMBER, WHERE I WAS USED TO SWING, AND THOUGHT THE AIR MUST RUSH AS FRESH TO SWALLOWS ON THE WING. MY SPIRIT FLEW IN FEATHERS THEN, THAT IS SO HEAVY NOW, 
and summer pools could hardly cool the fever on my brow. I remember, I remember, the fir-trees dark and high. I used to think their slender tops were close against the sky. It was a childish ignorance, but now tis little joy, to know I'm farther off from heaven than when I was a boy. Thomas Hood Driving Home the Cows out of the clover and blue-eyed grass he turned them into the river lane. One after another he let them pass, then fastened the meadow bars again. Under the willows and over the hill he patiently followed their sober pace. The merry whistle for once was still, and something shadowed the sunny face. Only a boy, and his father had said he never could let his youngest go— Two already were lying dead under the feet of the trampling foe. But after the evening work was done, and the frogs were loud in the meadow swamp, over his shoulder he slung his gun, and stealthily followed the footpath damp. Across the clover and through the wheat, with resolute heart and purpose grim, though the dew was on his hurrying feet, and the blind bat's flitting startled him. Thrice since then had the lanes been white, and the orchards sweet with apple-bloom, and now, when the cows came back at night, the feeble father drove them home. For news had come to the lonely farm that three were lying where two had lain, and the old man's tremulous palsied arm could never lean on a son's again. The summer day grew cool and late. He went for the cows when the work was done, but down the lane, as he opened the gate, he saw them coming one by one. Brindle, Ebony, Speckle, and Bess, shaking their horns in the evening wind, cropping the buttercups out of the grass, but who was it following close behind? Loosely swung in the idle air the empty sleeve of army blue, and worn and pale from the crisping hair looked out a face that the father knew. For close-barred prisons will sometimes yawn and yield their dead unto life again, and the day that comes with a cloudy dawn in golden glory at last may wane. The great tears sprang to their meeting eyes, for the heart must speak when the lips are dumb, and under the silent evening skies together they followed the cattle home. Kate Putnam Osgood End of section 41. Read by Kara Schallenberg on October 29, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 42. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems. Crinken and... STEVENSON'S BIRTHDAY Part 4 continued Crinken Crinken is the dearest of poems. Crinken was a little child, it was summer when he smiled. Eugene Field, above all other poets, paid the finest tribute to children. This poet only could make the whole ocean warm, because a child's heart was there to warm it. Crinken was a little child, it was summer when he smiled, Oft the hoary sea and grim stretched its white arms out to him, calling, Sun-child, come to me, let me warm my heart with thee. 
But the child heard not the sea, calling yearning evermore for the summer on the shore. Crinkin' on the beach one day, saw a maiden, niece, at play. On the pebbly beach she played, in the summer crinkin' maid. Fair and very fair was she, just a little child was he. Crinkin', said the maiden, niece, let me have a little kiss. Just a kiss and go with me, to the summer lands that be, down within the silver sea. Crinkin' was a little child, by the maiden, niece, beguiled. Hand in hand with her went he, and twas summer in the sea. And the hoary sea and grim to its bosom folded him, Clasped and kissed the little form, and the ocean's heart was warm. Now the sea calls out no more, it is winter on the shore, Winter where that little child made sweet summer when he smiled, Though tis summer on the sea, where with maiden Nis went he, It is winter on the shore, winter, winter, evermore. Of the summer on the deep come sweet visions in my sleep. His fair face lifts from the sea, his dear voice calls out to me. These my dreams of summer be. Crinkin was a little child, by the maiden Nis beguiled. Oft the hoary sea and grim reached its longing arms to him, crying, Sim-child, come to me, let me warm my heart with thee. But the sea calls out no more, it is winter on the shore, Winter, cold and dark and wild. Crinkin was a little child, it was summer when he smiled, Down he went into the sea, and the winter bides with me. Just a little child was he. Eugene Field Stevenson's Birthday "'How I should like a birthday,' said the child. "'I have so few, and they so far apart.' She spoke to Stevenson. The master smiled. "'Mine is to-day. I would with all my heart that it were yours. Too many years have I. Too swift they come, and all too swiftly fly.' So by a formal deed he there conveyed all right and title in his natal day, to have and hold, to sell or give away, then signed and gave it to the little maid. Joyful, yet fearing to believe too much, she took the deed, but scarcely dared unfold. Ah, liberal genius, at whose potent touch all common things shine with transmuted gold! A day of Stevenson's will prove to be not part of time, but immortality. Catherine Miller End of section 42 Read by Kara Schallenberg on October 29, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 43, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems, A Modest Wit and The Legend of Bishop Hatto. Part four continued. A modest wit. I learned a modest wit as a reading lesson when I was a child. It has clung to me, and so I cling to it. It is just as good as it ever was. It is a sharp thrust at power that depends on externalities. Selleck Osborne. A supercilious nabob of the East, haughty being great, purse-proud being rich, 
a governor or general at the least, I have forgotten which, had in his family a humble youth, who went from England in his patron's suit, an unassuming boy in truth, a lad of decent parts, and good repute. This youth had sense and spirit, but yet with all his sense, excessive diffidence obscured his merit. One day, at table, flushed with pride and wine, his honour, proudly free, severely merry, conceived it would be vastly fine to crack a joke upon his secretary. "'Young man,' he said, "'by what art, craft, or trade did your good father gain a livelihood?' "'He was a saddler, sir,' Modestus said, "'and in his time was reckoned good.' "'A saddler, eh?' and taught you Greek, instead of teaching you to sew? Pray, why did not your father make a saddler, sir, of you? Each parasite, then, as in duty bound, the joke applauded, and the laugh went round. At length Modestus, bowing low, said, craving pardon, if too free he made, Sir, by your leave, I fain would know your father's trade. My father's trade, by heaven that's too bad, my father's trade, why, blockhead, are you mad? My father, sir, did never stoop so low. He was a gentleman, I'd have you know. Excuse the liberty I take, Modestus said, with archness on his brow. Pray, why did not your father make a gentleman of you? Selick Osborne The Legend of Bishop Hatto the legend of Bishop Hatto is doubtless a myth. Robert Southey, 1774-1843. But the Mouse Tower on the Rhine is an object of interest to travellers, and the story has a point. The summer and autumn had been so wet, that in winter the corn was growing yet. T'was a piteous sight to see all around the grain lie rotting on the ground. Every day the starving poor crowded around Bishop Hatto's door, for he had a plentiful last year's store, and all the neighbourhood could tell his granaries were furnished well. At last Bishop Hatto appointed a day to quiet the poor without delay. He bade them to his great barn repair, and they should have food for winter there. Rejoiced such tidings good to hear, the poor folk flocked from far and near, the great barn was full as it could hold of women and children, young and old. Then, when he saw it could hold no more, Bishop Hatto, he made fast the door, and while for mercy on Christ they call, he set fire to the barn and burned them all. If faith, tis an excellent bonfire, quoth he, and the country is greatly obliged to me for ridding it in these times forlorn of rats that only consume the corn. So then to his palace returned he, and he sat down to supper merrily, and he slept that night like an innocent man, but Bishop Hatto never slept again. In the morning as he entered the hall, where his picture hung against the wall, a sweat like death all over him came, for the rats had eaten it out of the frame. As he looked there came a man from his farm, he had a countenance white with alarm, my lord, I opened your granaries this morn, and the rats had eaten all your corn. Another came running presently, and he was pale as pale could be. Fly, my lord bishop, fly, quoth he, 
Ten thousand rats are coming this way. The Lord forgive you yesterday. I'll go to my town on the Rhine, replied he. Tis the safest place in Germany. The walls are high, and the shores are steep, and the stream is strong, and the water deep. Bishop Hatto fearfully hastened away, and he crossed the Rhine without delay, and reached his tower, and barred with care all windows, doors, and loopholes there. He laid him down, and closed his eyes, but soon a scream made him arise. He started, and saw two eyes of flame on his pillow, from whence the screaming came. He listened, and looked. It was only the cat, but the bishop he grew more fearful for that, for she sat screaming, mad with fear, at the army of rats that was drawing near. For they have swum over the river so deep, and they have climbed the shore so steep, and up the tower their way is bent, to do the work for which they were sent. They are not to be told by the dozen or score, by thousands they come, and by myriads and more. Such numbers had never been heard of before, such a judgment had never been witnessed of yore. Down on his knees the bishop fell, and faster and faster his beads did tell, as louder and louder drawing near the gnawing of their teeth he could hear and in at the windows and in at the door and through the walls helter-skelter they pour and down from the ceiling and up through the floor from the right and the left from behind and before and all at once to the bishop they go they have whetted their teeth against the stones and now they pick the bishop's bones they gnawed the flesh from every limb for they were sent to do judgment on him. Robert Southey. End of section forty three. Read by Kara Schallenberg on October twenty ninth, two thousand six, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section forty four. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems, Columbus and The Shepherd of King Admetus. Part 4 continued. Columbus. We are greatly indebted to Joaquin Miller for his Sail On, Sail On. Endurance is the watchword of the poem and the watchword of our republic. Every man to his gun. Columbus discovered America in his own mind before he realized it or proved its existence. I have often drawn a chart of Columbus's life and voyages to show what need he had of the motto, Sail On, to accomplish his end. This is one of our greatest American poems. The writer still lives in California. Behind him lay the grey Azores, behind the gates of Hercules, before him not the ghost of shores, before him only shoreless seas. The good mate said, Now must we pray, for lo, the very stars are gone. Speak, Admiral, what shall I say? Why say, Sail on, and on. My men grow mutinous day by day, my men grow ghastly wan and weak. The stout mate thought of home, a spray of salt wave washed his swarthy cheek. What shall I say, brave Admiral, if we sight naught but seas at dawn? Why, you shall say at break of day, Sail on, sail on and on. They sailed and sailed as winds might blow, 
until at last the blanched mate said, Why, now not even God would know, should I and all my men fall dead. These very winds forget their way, for God from these dread seas is gone. Now speak, brave Admiral, and say. He said, Sail on, and on. They sailed, they sailed, then spoke his mate. This mad sea shows his teeth to-night. He curls his lip, he lies in wait, with lifted teeth, as if to bite. Brave Admiral, say but one word, what shall we do when hope is gone? The words leaped as a leaping sword. Sail on, sail on and on. Then, pale and worn, he kept his deck, and through the darkness peered that night. Ah, darkest night! And then a speck, a light, a light, a light, a light! It grew, a starlit flag unfurled, it grew to be time's burst of dawn. He gained a world, he gave that world its watchword. On and on. Joaquin Miller The Shepherd of King Admetus Once a year the children learn The Shepherd of King Admetus, which is one of the finest poems ever written as showing the possible growth of real history into mythology, the tendency of mankind to deify what is fine or sublime in human action. Not every child will learn this entire poem, because it is too long, but every child will learn the best lines in it, while the children are teaching it to me, and when I take my turn in teaching it to them. No child fails to catch the spirit and intent of the poem, and to become entirely familiar with it. There came a youth upon the earth, some thousand years ago, whose slender hands were nothing worth, whether to plough or reap or sow. Upon an empty tortoise-shell he stretched some chords and drew music that made men's bosoms swell, fearless, or brimmed their eyes with dew. Then King Admetus, one who had pure taste by right divine, decreed his singing not too bad, to hear between the cups of wine. And so, well pleased with being soothed into a sweet half-sleep, three times his kingly beard he smoothed, and made him viceroy o'er his sheep. His words were simple words enough, and yet he used them so that what in other mouths was rough, in his seemed musical and low. Men called him but a shiftless youth in whom no good they saw, and yet, unwittingly in truth, they made his careless words their law. They knew not how he learned it all, for idly hour by hour he sat and watched the dead leaves fall, or mused upon a common flower. It seemed the loveliness of things did teach him all their use, for in mere weeds and stones and springs he found a healing power profuse. Men granted that his speech was wise, but when a glance they caught of his slim grace and woman's eyes, they laughed, and called him good for naught. Yet after he was dead and gone, and e'en his memory dim, earth seemed more sweet to live upon, more full of love because of him. And day by day more holy grew each spot where he had trod, till after poets only knew their first-born brother as a god.
James Russell Lowell. End of section 44. Read by Kara Schallenberg on October 29, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 45. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem. How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to Aix. Reader's Note. This is one of my all-time favorite poems. I bumped into it in a book of poems about horses, I think, when I was a teenager, and I've loved it ever since. And I am so glad that it's included in this collection. I hope you like it as much as I do. End of the Reader's Note. I have an essay written by a lad of fourteen years on How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to Aix. I should judge from this essay that any boy at that age would like the poem, even if he had not himself been over the ground, as this boy had. I sprang to the stirrup, and Joris and he. I galloped, Dirk galloped, we galloped all three. Good speed, cried the watch, as the gate bolts undrew. Speed, echoed the wall to us, galloping through. Behind shut the postern, the lights sank to rest, and into the midnight we galloped abreast. Not a word to each other, we kept the great pace, neck by neck, stride by stride, never changing our place. I turned in my saddle, and made its girth tight, then shortened each stirrup, and set the peak right, rebuckled the cheek-strap, chained slacker the bit, nor galloped less steadily Rolland a whit. T'was moonset at starting, but while we drew near low Karen, the cocks crew, and twilight dawned clear. At Bohm a great yellow star came out to see, at Dufeld t'was morning as plain as could be and from Mecheln church steeple we heard the half-chime, so Joris broke silence with, Yet there is time. At air-shot up leaped of a sudden the sun, and against him the cattle stood black every one, to stare through the mist at us galloping past, and I saw my stout galloper Rolland at last with resolute shoulders each butting away the haze, as some bluff river headland its spray. And his low head and crest, just one sharp ear bent back for my voice, and the other pricked out on his track, and one eye's black intelligence, ever that glance, or its white edge at me, his own master askance. And the thick heavy spume-flakes, which I and anon his fierce lips shook upward, in galloping on. By Hasselt Dirk groaned, and cried Joris, Stay spur! Your Rose galloped bravely, the fault's not in her, We'll remember at Aix, for one heard the quick wheeze of her chest, saw the stretched neck and staggering knees and sunk tail, and horrible heave of the flank, as down on her haunches she shuddered and sank. So we were left galloping Joris and I, past Lowe's and past Tongres, no cloud in the sky. The broad sun above laughed a pitiless laugh. Neath our feet broke the brittle bright stubble like chaff till over by Dalhem a dome-spire sprang white, and, Gallop! gasped Joris, for Aix is in sight. How they'll greet us! And all in a moment his roan, rolled neck and croup over, lay dead as a stone. 
and there was my Roland to bear the whole weight of the news which alone could save Aix from her fate. With his nostrils like pits, full of blood to the brim, and with circles of red for his eye-sockets rim. Then I cast loose my buff coat, each holster let fall, shook off both my jack-boots, let go belt and all, stood up in the stirrup, leaned, patted his ear, called my Roland his pet name, my horse without peer, clapped my hands, laughed and sang any noise, bad or good, till at length into Aix Roland galloped and stood. And all I remember is friends flocking round, as I sat with his head twixt my knees on the ground, and no voice but was praising this Roland of mine, as I poured down his throat our last measure of wine, which, the Burgesses voting by common consent, was no more than his due who brought good news from Ghent. Robert Browning End of section 45 Read by Kara Schallenberg On October 29, 2006 in Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt, section 46, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems, The Burial of Sir John Moore at Corona, and The Eve of Waterloo. Part 4 continued. The Burial of Sir John Moore at Corona. The Burial of Sir John Moore was one of my reading lessons when I was a child. A distinguished teacher says, It has become a part of popular education, as has also The Eve of Waterloo and The Death of Napoleon. They are all poems of great rhythmical swing, intense and graphic. Not a drum was heard, not a funeral note, as his course to the rampart we hurried. Not a soldier discharged his farewell shot o'er the grave where our hero we buried. We buried him darkly at dead of night, the sods with our bayonets turning, by the struggling moonbeam's misty light, and the lantern dimly burning. No useless coffin enclosed his breast, not in sheet nor in shroud we wound him, but he lay like a warrior taking his rest, with his martial cloak around him. Few and short were the prayers we said, and we spoke not a word of sorrow, but we steadfastly gazed on the face that was dead, and we bitterly thought of the morrow. We thought, as we hollowed his narrow bed, and smoothed down his lonely pillow, that the foe and the stranger would tread o'er his head, and we far away on the billow. Lightly they'll talk of the spirit that's gone, and o'er his cold ashes upbraid him, but little he'll wreck if they let him sleep on, in the grave where a Briton has laid him. But half of our heavy task was done when the clock struck the hour for retiring, and we heard the distant and random gun that the foe was sullenly firing. Slowly and sadly we laid him down from the field of his fame fresh and gory. We carved not a line, and we raised not a stone, but we left him alone with his glory." Sea Wolf. The Eve of Waterloo. The Eve of Waterloo by Lord Byron, seventeen eighty eight to eighteen twenty four. 
Here is another old reading-book gem that will always be dear to every boy's heart, if he only reads it a few times. There was a sound of revelry by night, and Belgium's capital had gathered then, her beauty and her chivalry, and bright the lamps shone o'er fair women and brave men. A thousand hearts beat happily, and when music arose with its voluptuous swell, soft eyes looked love to eyes which spake again, and all went merry as a marriage-bell. But hush, hark, a deep sound strikes like a rising knell. Did ye not hear it? No, twas but the wind, or the car rattling o'er the stony street. On with the dance, let joy be unconfined. No sleep till morn, when youth and pleasure meet, to chase the glowing hours with flying feet. But hark, that heavy sound breaks in once more, as if the clouds its echo would repeat, and nearer, clearer, deadlier than before. Arm, arm, it is, it is the cannon's opening roar. Ah, then and there was hurrying to and fro, and gathering tears and tremblings of distress, and cheeks all pale which but an hour ago blushed at the praise of their own loveliness. And there were sudden partings, such as press the life from out young hearts, and choking sighs, which ne'er might be repeated, who could guess, if evermore should meet those mutual eyes, since upon night so sweet such awful morn could rise. And there was mounting in hot haste, the steed, the mustering squadron, and the clattering car, went pouring forward with impetuous speed, and swiftly forming in the ranks of war, and the deep thunder peal on peal afar, and near the beat of the alarming drum roused up the soldier ere the morning star, while thronged the citizens with terror dumb, or whispering with white lips, The foe! They come! They come! And Ardenes waves above them her green leaves, dewy with nature's tear-drops as they pass, grieving, if aught inanimate ever grieves, over the unreturning brave, alas! Ere evening to be trodden like the grass, which now beneath them, but above shall grow, in its next verdure, when this fiery mass of living valour rolling on the foe, and burning with high hope, shall moulder cold and low. Last noon beheld them full of lusty life, last eve in beauty's circle proudly gay. The midnight brought the signal sound of strife, the morn the marshalling in arms, the day battles magnificently stern array. The thunder-clouds close o'er it, which, when rent, the earth is covered thick with other clay, which her own clay shall cover, heaped and pent, rider and horse, friend, foe, in one red burial blent. Lord Byron End of section 46 Read by Kara Schallenberg on October 29, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt, section 47, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, Ivry, A Song of the Huguenots. Part 4 continued. Ivry, A Song of the Huguenots. 
Laddie, aged eleven, do you remember how you studied and recited King Henry of Navarre every poetry hour for a year? It was a long poem, but you stuck it to the end. We did not know the meaning of a certain word, but I found it up in Switzerland. It is the name of a little town. Now glory to the Lord of hosts, from whom all glories are, and glory to our sovereign liege, King Henry of Navarre. Now let there be the merry sound of music and of dance, through thy cornfields green and sunny vines, O pleasant land of France. And thou, Rochelle, our own Rochelle, proud city of the waters, again let rapture light the eyes of all thy mourning daughters. As thou wert constant in our ills, be joyous in our joy, for cold and stiff and still are they who wrought thy walls annoy. Hurrah! Hurrah! A single field hath turned the chance of war. Hurrah! Hurrah! For Ivry and Henry of Navarre. Oh, how our hearts were beating when at the dawn of day we saw the army of the League drawn out in long array, with all its priest-led citizens and all its rebel peers, and Appenzel's stout infantry and Egmont's Flemish spears. There rode the brood of false Lorraine, the curses of our land, and dark Mayenne was in the midst, a truncheon in his hand, and as we looked on them we thought of Seine's empurpled flood, and good Coligny's hoary hair all dabbled with his blood. And we cried unto the living God, who rules the fate of war, to fight for his own holy name, and Henry of Navarre. The king is come to marshal us, all in his armour dressed, and he has bound a snow-white plume upon his gallant crest. He looked upon his people, and a tear was in his eye. He looked upon the traitors, and his glance was stern and high. Right graciously he smiled on us, as rolled from wing to wing, down all our line a deafening shout, God save our lord the king! And if my standard-bearer fall, as fall full well he may, for never saw I promise yet of such a bloody fray, press where ye see my white plume shine amid the ranks of war, and be your oriflamme to-day the helmet of Navarre. Hurrah! the foes are moving, hark to the mingled din of fife and steed and trump and drum and roaring culverin. The fiery duke is pricking fast across St. Andre's plain, with all the hireling chivalry of Gelders and Almain. Now by the lips of those ye love, fair gentlemen of France, charge for the golden lilies, upon them with the lance. A thousand spurs are striking deep, a thousand spears in rest, a thousand knights are pressing close behind the snow-white crest. And in they burst, and on they rushed, while like a guiding star, amid the thickest carnage blazed the helmet of Navarre. Now, God be praised, the day is ours, Mayenne hath turned his reign. Daumale hath cried for quarter, the Flemish count is slain. Their ranks are breaking like thin clouds before a Biscay gale. The field is heaped with bleeding steeds and flags and cloven mail. And then we thought on vengeance, and all along our van, Remember St. Bartholomew was passed from man to man. But out spake gentle Henry, No Frenchman is my foe, Down, down with every foreigner, but let your brethren go. 
Oh, was there ever such a night, in friendship or in war, as our sovereign lord King Henry, the soldier of Navarre? Right well fought all the Frenchmen who fought for France to-day, and many a lordly banner God gave them for a prey. But we of the religion have borne us best in fight, and the good lord of Rosny has ta'en the cornet white. Our own true Maximilian the cornet white hath ta'en, the cornet white with crosses black, the flag of false Lorraine. Up with it high, unfurl it wide, that all the host may know, how God hath humbled the proud house which wrought his church such woe. Then on the ground, while trumpets sound their loudest points of war, fling the red shreds a footcloth meet for Henry of Navarre. Ho, maidens of Vienna, ho, matrons of Lucerne, Weep, weep, and rend your hair for those who never shall return. Ho, Philip, send for charity thy Mexican pistoles, that Antwerp monks may sing a mass for thy poor spearmen's souls. Ho, gallant nobles of the league, look that your arms be bright. Ho, burghers of St. Genevieve, keep watch and ward to-night. For our God hath crushed the tyrant, our God hath raised the slave, and mocked the counsel of the wise, the valour of the brave. Then glory to his holy name, from whom all glories are, and glory to our sovereign lord, King Henry of Navarre. Thomas B. Macaulay End of section 47 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 2nd, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 48 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains two poems, The Glove and the Lions, and The Well of St. Keen. Part 4 Continued The Glove and the Lions the Glove and the Lions was one of my early reading lessons. It is an incisive thrust at the vanity of fair women. A woman may be a true knight as well as a man. Lee Hunt, 1784-1859 King Francis was a hearty king, and loved a royal sport. And one day, as his lions fought, sat looking on the court. The nobles filled the benches with the ladies in their pride, and among them sat the Count de Lorge, with one for whom he sighed. And truly t'was a gallant thing to see that crowning show, valour and love, and a king above, and the royal beasts below. Ramped and roared the lions, with horrid laughing jaws, they bit, they glared, gave blows like beams, a wind went with their paws. With wallowing might and stifled roar they rolled on one another, till all the pit with sand and mane was in a thunderous smother. The bloody foam above the bars came whisking through the air. Said Francis then, Faith, gentlemen, we're better here than there. Delorge's love o'erheard the king, a beauteous lively dame, with smiling lips and sharp bright eyes, which always seemed the same. She thought, The count, my lover, is brave as brave can be, he surely would do wondrous things to show his love of me. 
King, ladies, lovers, all look on. The occasion is divine. I'll drop my glove to prove his love. Great glory will be mine. She dropped her glove to prove his love, then looked at him and smiled. He bowed, and in a moment leapt among the lions wild. His leap was quick, return was quick, he has regained his place. Then threw the glove, but not with love, right in the lady's face. "'Well done!' cried Francis, bravely done, and he rose from where he sat. "'No love,' quoth he, "'but vanity sets love a task like that.'" Lee Hunt THE WELL OF ST. KEEN I found the well of St. Keen in Cornwall, England, not the poem, but the real well. The poem is of the great body of world lore. A well there is in the West Country, and a clearer one never was seen. There is not a wife in the West Country, but has heard of the well of St. Keen. An oak and an elm tree stand beside, and behind does an ash tree grow and a willow from the bank above droops to the water below. A traveller came to the well of St. Keen, pleasant it was to his eye, for from cock-crow he had been travelling, and there was not a cloud in the sky. He drank of the water so cool and clear, for thirsty and hot was he, and he sat down upon the bank under the willow-tree. There came a man from the neighbouring town at the well to fill his pail, on the well-side he rested it, and bade the stranger hail. "'Now art thou a bachelor, stranger?' quoth he. "'For an if thou hast a wife, the happiest draught thou hast drunk this day, that ever thou didst in thy life. "'Or has your good woman, if one you have, in Cornwall ever been? "'For an if she have, I'll venture my life, she has drunk of the well of St. Keen. "'I have left a good woman who never was here,' the stranger he made reply." But that my draught should be better for that, I pray you answer me why. St. Keen, quoth the countryman, many a time drank of this crystal well, and before the angel summoned her she laid on the water a spell. If the husband of this gifted well shall drink before his wife, a happy man thenceforth is he, for he shall be master for life. But if the wife should drink of it first, God help the husband then! The stranger stooped to the well of St. Keen, and drank of the waters again. "'You drank of the well, I warrant, betimes,' he to the countryman said. But the countryman smiled as the stranger spake, and sheepishly shook his head. "'I hastened as soon as the wedding was done, and left my wife in the porch. But if faith, she had been wiser than me, for she took a bottle to church.'" Robert Southey End of section 48. Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 2nd, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 49. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems, The Nautilus and the Ammonite, and... THE SOLITUDE OF ALEXANDER SELKIRK Part 4 continued. THE NAUTILUS AND THE AMMONITE 
The Nautilus and the Ammonite finds a place here out of respect to a twelve-year-old girl who recited it at one of our poetry hours years ago. It made a profound impression on the fifty pupils assembled. I never read it without feeling that it stands the test. The Nautilus and the Ammonite were launched in friendly strife, each sent to float in its tiny boat on the wide, wide sea of life. For each could swim on the ocean's brim, and, when wearied, its sail could furl, and sink to sleep in the great sea-deep, in its palace all of pearl. And theirs was a bliss more fair than this, which we taste in our colder clime, for they were rife in a tropic life, a brighter and better clime. They swam mid isles whose summer smiles were dimmed by no alloy, whose groves were palm, whose air was balm, and life won only joy. They sailed all day through creek and bay, and traversed the ocean deep, and at night they sank on a coral bank, in its fairy bowers to sleep. And the monsters vast of ages past they beheld in their ocean caves, they saw them ride in their power and pride, and sink in their deep-sea graves. And hand in hand, from strand to strand, they sailed in mirth and glee, these fairy shells, with their crystal cells, twin sisters of the sea. And they came at last to a sea long past, but as they reached its shore, the Almighty's breath spoke out in death, and the Ammonite was no more. So the Nautilus now, in its shelly prow, as over the deep it strays, still seems to seek, in bay and creek, its companion of other days. And alike do we, on life's stormy sea, as we roam from shore to shore, thus tempest-tossed, seek the loved, the lost, and find them on earth no more. Yet the hope how sweet again to meet, as we look to a distant strand, where heart meets heart, and no more they part who meet in that better land. Anonymous THE SOLITUDE OF ALEXANDER SELKIRK I am monarch of all I survey, my right there is none to dispute. From the centre all round to the sea, I am lord of the fowl and the brute. O solitude, where are the charms that sages have seen in thy face? Better dwell in the midst of alarms than reign in this horrible place. I am out of humanity's reach, I must finish my journey alone. Never hear the sweet music of speech, I start at the sound of my own. The beasts that roam over the plain my form with indifference see, they are so unacquainted with man, their tameness is shocking to me. Society, friendship, and love, divinely bestowed upon man, oh, had I the wings of a dove, how soon would I taste you again! My sorrows I then might assuage in the ways of religion and truth, might learn from the wisdom of age, and be cheered by the sallies of youth. Ye winds that have made me your sport, convey to this desolate shore some cordial endearing report of a land I shall visit no more. My friends, do they now and then send a wish or a thought after me? Oh, tell me I yet have a friend, though a friend I am never to see. How fleet is a glance of the mind, compared with the speed of its flight! The tempest itself lags behind, 
and the swift-winged arrows of light. When I think of my own native land, in a moment I seem to be there. But alas, recollection at hand soon hurries me back to despair. But the sea-fowl is gone to her nest, the beast is laid down in his lair. Even here is a season of rest, and I to my cabin repair. There's mercy in every place, and mercy encouraging thought, gives even affliction a grace, and reconciles man to his lot. William Cowper End of section 49 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 2nd, 2006 In Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 50 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains two poems, The Homes of England and Horatius at the Bridge Part 4 Continued The Homes of England I wonder if the English people appreciate the homes of England. It is a stately poem, worthy of a Goethe or a Shakespeare. England is distinctly a country of homes, pretty, little, humble homes, as well as stately palaces and castles, homes well made of stone or brick for the most part, and clad with ivy and roses. Who would not be proud to have had such a home as Anne Hathaway's humble cottage, or one of the little huts in the Lake District? The homes of America are often more palatial, especially in small cities, but the use of wood in America makes them less substantial than the slate-and-brick houses of England. The stately homes of England, how beautiful they stand, amidst their tall ancestral trees, o'er all the pleasant land. The deer across their greensward bound, through shade and sunny gleam, and the swan glides past them with the sound of some rejoicing stream. The merry homes of England, around their hearths by night, what gladsome looks of household love meet in the ruddy light! There woman's voice flows forth in song, or childish tale is told, or lips move tunefully along some glorious page of old. The blessed homes of England, how softly on their bowers is laid the holy quietness, that breathes from sabbath hours solemn yet sweet the church bells chime floats through their woods at morn all other sounds in that still time of breeze and leaf are born the cottage homes of england by thousands on her plains they are smiling o'er the silvery brooks and round the hamlet's fanes through glowing orchards forth they peep each from its nook of leaves and fearless there the lowly sleep, as the bird beneath their eaves. The free, fair homes of England, long, long in hut and hall, may hearts of native proof be reared to guard each hallowed wall. And green forever be the groves, and bright the flowery sod, where first the child's glad spirit loves its country and its God. Felicia Hemans Horatius at the Bridge Horatius at the Bridge is too long a poem for children to memorize, but I never saw a boy who did not want some stanzas of it. Hold the bridge with me. Boys like that motto instinctively. 
Lars Porsena of Clusium, by the nine gods he swore that the great house of Tarkin should suffer wrong no more. By the nine gods he swore it, and named a trysting day, and bade his messengers ride forth, east and west, and south and north, to summon his array. East and west, and south and north, the messengers ride fast, and tower and town and cottage have heard the trumpet's blast. Shame on the false Etruscan who lingers in his home, when Porsena of Clusium is on the march for Rome. The horsemen and the footmen are pouring in amain, from many a stately market-place, from many a fruitful plain, from many a lonely hamlet, which, hid by beech and pine, like an eagle's nest, hangs on the crest of purple Apennine. The harvests of Aricium this year old men shall reap, this year young boys in umbros shall plunge the struggling sheep, and in the vats of Luna this year the must shall foam, round the white feet of laughing girls whose sires have marched to Rome. There be thirty chosen prophets, the wisest of the land, who alway by Lars Porsena both morn and evening stand. Evening and morn the thirty have turned the verses o'er, traced from the right on linen white by mighty seers of yore. And with one voice the thirty have their glad answer given, Go forth, go forth, Lars Porsena, go forth, beloved of heaven, go and return in glory to Clusium's royal dome, and hang round Nurcia's altars the golden shields of Rome. And now hath every city sent up her tale of men, the foot are fourscore thousand, the horse are thousands ten. Before the gates of Sutrium is met the great array, a proud man was Lars Porsena upon the trysting day. For all the Etruscan armies were ranged beneath his eye, and many a banished Roman and many a stout ally, and with a mighty following to join the muster came the Tusculan Mamilius, prince of the Latian name. But by the yellow Tiber was tumult and affright. From all the spacious champaign to Rome men took their flight. A mile around the city the throng stopped up the ways, a fearful sight it was to see through two long nights and days. Now from the rock Tarpeian could the wan burghers spy the line of blazing villages red in the midnight sky? The fathers of the city they sat all night and day, for every hour some horsemen came with tidings of dismay. To eastward and to westward have spread the Tuscan bands, nor house nor fence nor dovecot in Crustumerium stands. Verbena down to Ostia hath wasted all the plain. Aster hath stormed Janiculum, and the stout guards are slain. I wis in all the senate there was no heart so bold, but sore it ached and fast it beat when that ill news was told. Forthwith uprose the consul, uprose the fathers all, in haste they girded up their gowns and hide them to the wall. They held a council standing before the river gate. Short time was there, ye well may guess, for musing or debate. Out spoke the consul roundly, The bridge must straight go down, For since Janiculum is lost, Naught else can save the town. Just then a scout came flying, All wild with haste and fear. 
To arms, to arms, Sir Consul, Lars Porsena is here. On the low hills to westward the Consul fixed his eye, and saw the swarthy storm of dust rise fast along the sky. And nearer, fast and nearer, doth the red whirlwind come, and louder still and still more loud from underneath that rolling cloud is heard the trumpet's war-note proud, the trampling and the hum. And plainly and more plainly now through the gloom appears, far to left and far to right, in broken gleams of dark blue light, the long array of helmets bright, the long array of spears. And plainly and more plainly above the glimmering line, now might ye see the banners of twelve fair cities shine. But the banner of proud Clusium was the highest of them all, the terror of the Umbrian, the terror of the Gaul. Fast by the royal standard, o'erlooking all the war, Lars Porsena of Clusium sat in his ivory car. By the right wheel rode Mamilius, prince of the Latian name, and by the left false Sextus that wrought the deed of shame. But when the face of Sextus was seen among the foes, a yell that rent the firmament from all the town arose. On the housetops was no woman but spat toward him and hissed, no child but screamed out curses and shook its little fist. But the consul's brow was sad, and the consul's speech was low, and darkly looked he at the wall and darkly at the foe. Their van will be upon us before the bridge goes down, and if they once may win the bridge, what hope to save the town? Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon this earth death cometh soon or late, and how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods, and for the tender mother who dandled him to rest? and for the wife who nurses his baby at her breast, and for the holy maidens who feed the eternal flame to save them from false Sextus that wrought the deed of shame. Hew down the bridge, Sir Consul, with all the speed ye may. I, with two more to help me, will hold the foe in play. In yon straight path a thousand may well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either hand and keep the bridge with me? Then out spake Spurius Lartius, a Ramnian proud was he, I will stand at thy right hand and keep the bridge with thee. And out spake strong Herminius, of Titian blood was he, I will abide on thy left side and keep the bridge with thee. Horatius, quoth the consul, as thou sayst, so let it be, and straight against that great array forth went the dauntless three. For Romans in Rome's quarrel spared neither land nor gold, nor son nor wife, nor limb nor life, in the brave days of old. Now while the three were tightening their harness on their backs, the consul was the foremost man to take in hand an axe, and fathers mixed with commons seized hatchet, bar, and crow, and smote upon the planks above and loosed the props below. Meanwhile the Tuscan army, right glorious to behold, came flashing back the noonday light, rank behind rank, like surges bright of a broad sea of gold. Four hundred trumpets sounded a peal of warlike glee, as that great host, with measured tread 
and spears advanced, and ensigns spread, rolled slowly toward the bridge's head, where stood the dauntless three. This poem is continued in the next section. End of section 50. Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 2nd, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 51. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains um, just one poem, really half of a poem. It is part two of Horatius at the Bridge. Part four continued. The three stood calm and silent, and looked upon the foes, and a great shout of laughter from all the vanguard rose, and forth three chiefs came spurring before that deep array. To earth they sprang, their swords they drew, and lifted high their shields, and flew to win the narrow way. On us from green Typhernum, lord of the hill of vines, and Sayus, whose eight hundred slaves sicken in Ilva's mines, and Picus, long to Clusium, vassal in peace and war, who led to fight his Umbrian powers from that grey crag where, girt with towers, the fortress of Nequinium lowers o'er the pale waves of Nar. Stout Lartius hurled down on us into the stream beneath. Herminius struck at Sayus and clove him to the teeth. At Picus brave Horatius darted one fiery thrust, and the proud Umbrian's gilded arms clashed in the bloody dust. Then Ocnus of Faleri rushed on the Roman three, and Lausulus of Ergo, the rover of the sea, and Arons of Volsinium, who slew the great wild boar, the great wild boar that had his den amid the reeds of Cosa's fen, and wasted fields and slaughtered men along Albinia's shore. Herminius smote down Arons, Lartius laid Ocnus low, right to the heart of Lausulus Horatius sent a blow. Lie there, he cried, fell pirate, no more aghast and pale, from Ostia's walls the crowd shall mark the tracks of thy destroying bark, no more Campania's hinds shall fly to woods and caverns when they spy thy thrice accursed sail. But now no sound of laughter was heard among the foes, a wild and wrathful clamour from all the vanguard rose. Six spears' length from the entrance halted that deep array, and for a space no man came forth to win the narrow way. But hark! the cry is Aster, and lo! the ranks divide, and the great lord of Luna comes with his stately stride. Upon his ample shoulders clangs loud the fourfold shield, and in his hand he shakes the brand which none but he can wield. He smiled on those bold Romans, a smile serene and high, he eyed the flinching Tuscans, and scorn was in his eye. Quoth he, The she-wolf's litter stand savagely at bay, but will ye dare to follow if Aster clears the way? Then whirling up his broadsword with both hands to the height, he rushed against Horatius, and smote with all his might. With shield and blade Horatius right deftly turned the blow. 
The blow, though turned, came yet too nigh. It missed his helm, but gashed his thigh. The Tuscans raised a joyful cry to see the red blood flow. He reeled, and on Herminius he leaned one breathing space, then, like a wild cat mad with wounds, sprang right at Astor's face. Through teeth and skull and helmet so fierce a thrust he sped, the good sword stood a handbreadth out behind the Tuscan's head. And the great lord of Luna fell at the deadly stroke, as falls on Mount Alvernus a thunder-smitten oak. Far o'er the crashing forest the giant arms lie spread, and the pale augurs, muttering low, gaze on the blasted head. On Astor's throat Horatius right firmly pressed his heel, and thrice and four times tugged amain ere he wrenched out the steel. And see, he cried, the welcome, fair guests, that waits you here, what noble Lucomo comes next to taste our Roman cheer. But at his haughty challenge a sullen murmur ran, mingled of wrath and shame and dread along that glittering van. There lacked not men of prowess, nor men of lordly race, for all Etruria's noblest were round the fatal place. But all Etruria's noblest felt their heart sink to see on the earth the bloody corpses in the path the dauntless three, and from the ghastly entrance where those bold Romans stood all shrank like boys who, unaware, ranging the woods to start a hare, come to the mouth of the dark lair where growling low a fierce old bear lies amid bones and blood was none who would be foremost to lead such dire attack but those behind cried forward and those before cried back and backward now and forward wavers the deep array and on the tossing sea of steel to and fro the standards reel and the victorious trumpet peal dies fitfully away Yet one man for one moment strode out before the crowd, well known was he to all the three, and they gave him greeting loud. Now welcome, welcome, Sextus, now welcome to thy home, why dost thou stay and turn away? Here lies the road to Rome. Thrice looked he at the city, thrice looked he at the dead, and thrice came on in fury, and thrice turned back in dread and, white with fear and hatred, scowled at the narrow way, where, wallowing in a pool of blood, the bravest Tuscans lay. But meanwhile axe and lever have manfully been plied, and now the bridge hangs tottering above the boiling tide. "'Come back, come back, Horatius!' loud cried the fathers all. "'Back, Lartius, back, Herminius, back, ere the ruin fall!' Back darted Spurius Lartius, Herminius darted back, and as they passed beneath their feet they felt the timbers crack. But when they turned their faces, and on the farther shore saw brave Horatius stand alone, they would have crossed once more. But with a crash like thunder fell every loosened beam, and like a dam the mighty wreck lay right athwart the stream. And a long shout of triumph rose from the walls of Rome, as to the highest turret-tops was splashed the yellow foam. And like a horse unbroken, when first he feels the rein, the furious river struggled hard and tossed his tawny mane, and burst the curb and bounded, rejoicing to be free, and whirling down in fierce career, battlement and plank and pier, rushed headlong to the sea. 
Alone stood brave Horatius, but constant still in mind, Thrice thirty thousand foes before, and the broad flood behind. Down with him, cried false Sextus, with a smile on his pale face. Now yield thee, cried Lars Porcina, now yield thee to our grace. Round turned he, as not deigning those craven ranks to see. Naught spake he to Lars Porcina, to Sextus naught spake he. But he saw on Palatinus the white porch of his home, and he spake to the noble river that rolls by the towers of Rome. O Tiber, father Tiber, to whom the Romans pray, a Roman's life, a Roman's arms, take thou in charge this day. So he spake, and speaking, sheathed the good sword by his side, and with his harness on his back, plunged headlong in the tide. No sound of joy or sorrow was heard from either bank, but friends and foes in dumb surprise, with parted lips and straining eyes, stood gazing where he sank. And when above the surges they saw his crest appear, all Rome sent forth a rapturous cry, and even the ranks of Tuscany could scarce forbear to cheer. And fiercely ran the current, swollen high by months of rain, and fast his blood was flowing, and he was sore in pain, and heavy with his armour, and spent with changing blows, and oft they thought him sinking, but still again he rose. Never, I ween, did swimmer in such an evil case struggle through such a raging flood safe to the landing-place. But his limbs were borne up bravely by the brave heart within, and our good father Tiber bore bravely up his chin. Curse on him, quoth false Sextus, will not the villain drown? But for this day, ere close of day, we should have sacked the town. Heaven help him, quoth Lars Porcina, and bring him safe to shore, for such a gallant feat of arms was never seen before. And now he feels the bottom, now on dry earth he stands, now round him throng the fathers to press his gory hands, and now, with shouts and clapping and noise of weeping loud, he enters through the river-gate, borne by the joyous crowd. They gave him of the corn-land that it was of public right, as much as two strong oxen could plough from morn till night. And they made a molten image, and set it up on high, and there it stands unto this day, to witness if I lie. It stands in the Comitium, plain for all folk to see, Horatius in his harness halting upon one knee, and underneath is written in letters all of gold, how valiantly he kept the bridge in the brave days of old. And still his name sounds stirring unto the men of Rome, as the trumpet blast that cries to them to charge the Volscian home. And wives still pray to Juno for boys with hearts as bold as he who kept the bridge so well in the brave days of old. And in the nights of winter, when the cold north winds blow, and the long howling of the wolves is heard amid the snow, when round the lonely cottage roars loud the tempest's din, and the good logs of Algidas roar louder yet within. When the oldest cask is opened, and the largest lamp is lit, when the chestnuts glow in the embers, and the kid turns on the spit, when young and old in circle around the firebrands close, when the girls are weaving baskets, and the lads are shaping bows, when the good man mends his armour and trims his helmet's plume, when the good wife's shuttle merrily goes flashing through the loom, 
with weeping and with laughter, still is the story told, how well Horatius kept the bridge in the brave days of old. Thomas B. Macaulay End of section 51 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 10, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 52 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains just one poem. The Planting of the Apple Tree Part 4 Continued The planting of the apple tree has become a favorite for Arbor Day exercises. The planting of trees as against their destruction is a vital point in our political and national welfare. Come, let us plant the apple-tree, Cleave the tough green sword with the spade, Wide let its hollow bed be made, There gently lay the roots, And there sift the dark mould with kindly care, And press it o'er them tenderly, As round the sleeping infant's feet We softly fold the cradle-sheet, So plant we the apple-tree. What plant we in this apple-tree? Buds! which the breath of summer days shall lengthen into leafy sprays, boughs where the thrush with crimson breast shall haunt and sing and hide her nest. We plant upon the sunny lea a shadow for the noontide hour, a shelter from the summer shower, when we plant the apple-tree. What plant we in this apple-tree? Sweets for a hundred flowery springs to load the May wind's restless wings, when from the orchard row he pours its fragrance through our open doors, a world of blossoms for the bee, flowers for the sick girl's silent room, for the glad infant springs of bloom, we plant with the apple-tree. What plant we in this apple-tree? Fruits that shall swell in sunny June, and redden in the August noon, and drop when gentle airs come by that fan the blue September sky while children come with cries of glee and seek them where the fragrant grass betrays their bed to those who pass at the foot of the apple-tree. And when above this apple-tree the winter stars are quivering bright, the winds go howling through the night, girls whose eyes o'erflow with mirth shall peel its fruit by cottage hearth, and guests in prouder homes shall see Heaped with the grape of Sintra's vine, And golden orange of the line, The fruit of the apple-tree. The fruitage of this apple-tree, Winds and our flag of stripe and star, Shall bear to coasts that lie afar, Where men shall wonder at the view, And ask in what fair groves they grew, And sojourners beyond the sea Shall think of childhood's careless day, And long, long hours of summer play, in the shade of the apple-tree. Each year shall give this apple-tree a broader flush of roseate bloom, a deeper maze of verdurous gloom, and loosen, when the frost-clouds lower, the crisp brown leaves in thicker shower. The years shall come and pass, but we shall hear no longer where we lie, the summer's songs, the autumn's sigh, in the boughs of the apple-tree. And time shall waste this apple-tree, O oh, when its aged branches throw Thin shadows on the ground below, 
Shall fraud and force and iron will oppress the weak and helpless still? What shall the tasks of mercy be amid the toils, the strifes, the tears, of those who live when length of years is wasting this apple-tree? Who planted this old apple-tree, the children of that distant day, thus to some aged man shall say? And gazing on its mossy stem, the grey-haired man shall answer them. A poet of the land was he, born in the rude but good old times. Tis said he made some quaint old rhymes on planting the apple-tree. William Cullen Bryant End of section 52 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 10, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 53, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. June, A Psalm of Life, and barnacles part five on and on june june by james russell lowell eighteen nineteen to eighteen ninety one is a fragment from the vision of sir launfall it finds a place in this volume because it is the most perfect description of a charming day ever written what is so rare as a day in june then, if ever come perfect days, then heaven tries the earth if it be in tune, and over it softly her warm ear lays. Whether we look or whether we listen, we hear life murmur or see it glisten. Every clod feels a stir of might, an instinct within it that reaches and towers, and groping blindly above it for light climbs to a soul in grass and flowers. The flush of life may well be seen thrilling back over hills and valleys, the cowslip startles in meadows green, the buttercup catches the sun in its chalice. And there's never a leaf nor a blade too mean to be some happy creature's palace. The little bird sits at his door in the sun, a tilt like a blossom among the leaves, and lets his illumined being o'errun with the deluge of summer it receives. His mate feels the eggs beneath her wings, and the heart in her dumb breast flutters and sings, he sings to the wide world, and she to her nest, In the nice ear of nature, which song is the best? James Russell Lowell A Psalm of Life What the Heart of the Young Man Said to the Psalmist A Psalm of Life by Henry W. Longfellow, 1807-1882, is like a treasure laid up in heaven. It should be learned for its future value to the child, not necessarily because the child likes it. Its value will dawn on him. Tell me not, in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment, and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each to-morrow find us farther than to-day. Art is long, and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums, are beating, 
funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, howe'er pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within, and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and, departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing, shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labour and to wait. Henry W. Longfellow Barnacles Barnacles by Sidney Lanier, 1842-1881, is a poem that I teach in connection with my lessons on natural history. We have a good specimen of a barnacle, and the children see them on the shells on the coast. The ethical point is invaluable. My soul is sailing through the sea, but the past is heavy and hindereth me. The path hath crusted cumbrous shells that hold the flesh of cold sea-mells about my soul. The huge waves wash, the high waves roll, each barnacle clingeth and worketh dole, and hindereth me from sailing. Old past, let go, and drop i' the sea, till fathomless waters cover thee. For I am living, but thou art dead, thou drawest back, I strive ahead, the day to find. Thy shells unbind, night comes behind, I needs must hurry with the wind, and trim me best for sailing. Sidney Lanier End of section 53 Read by Kara Schallenberg On November 17, 2006 In Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 54 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains the following poems A Happy Life Home Sweet Home Juliet of Nations and Woodman Spare That Tree Part 5 Continued A Happy Life how happy is he, born and taught, That serveth not another's will, Whose armour is his honest thought, And simple truth his utmost skill, Whose passions not his masters are, Whose soul is still prepared for death, Not tied unto the world with care Of public fame or private breath. Sir Henry Wotton Home Sweet Home Home Sweet Home by John Howard Payne, 1791-1852, is a poem that reaches into the heart. What is home? A place where we experience independence, safety, privacy, and where we can dispense hospitality. The family is the true unit. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. A charm from the sky seems to hallow us there, which, seek through the world, is ne'er met with elsewhere. Home, 
home, sweet, sweet home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. An exile from home, splendor dazzles in vain, oh, give me my lowly thatched cottage again, the birds singing gaily that come at my call, give me them, and the peace of mind dearer than all. Home, home, sweet, sweet home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. How sweet tis to sit neath a fond father's smile, And the cares of a mother to soothe and beguile. Let others delight mid new pleasures to roam, But give me, oh, give me the pleasures of home. Home, home, sweet, sweet home, There's no place like home, there's no place like home. To thee I'll return, overburdened with care, The heart's dearest solace will smile on me there, no more from that cottage again will I roam, Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Home, home, sweet, sweet home, There's no place like home, there's no place like home. John Howard Payne From Casa Guidi Windows, Juliet of Nations I heard last night a little child go singing, Neath Casa Guidi windows by the church. O oh, Bella Liberta, O oh, Bella, Stringing the same words still on notes He went in search, so high for, You concluded the upspringing Of such a nimble bird to sky from perch, Must leave the whole bush in a tremble green, And that the heart of Italy must beat, While such a voice had leave to rise serene Twixt church and palace of a Florence street. A little child, too, who not long had been by mother's finger steadied on his feet. And still, O oh, Bella Liberta, he sang. Elizabeth Barrett Browning Woodman, Spare That Tree Woodman, Spare That Tree, by George Pope Morris, 1802-1864, is included in this collection because I have loved it all my life, and I never knew anyone who could or would offer a criticism upon it. Its value lies in its recognition of childhood's pleasures. Woodman, spare that tree, touch not a single bough. In youth it sheltered me, and I'll protect it now. T'was my forefather's hand that placed it near his cot. There, woodman, let it stand. Thy axe shall harm it not. That old familiar tree, whose glory and renown are spread o'er land and sea, and wouldst thou hew it down? Woodman, forbear thy stroke, Cut not its earth-bound ties, O oh, spare that aged oak Now towering to the skies. When but an idle boy I sought its grateful shade, In all their gushing joy Here too my sisters played. My mother kissed me here, My father pressed my hand. Forgive this foolish tear, But let that old oak stand. My heart-strings round thee cling, Close as thy bark, old friend. Here shall the wild bird sing, And still thy branches bend. Old tree, the storm still brave, And woodman leave the spot. While I've a hand to save, Thy axe shall harm it not. George Pope Morris End of section 54 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 17, 2006 In Oceanside, California
Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 55. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. Abide with me. Lead kindly light. The last rose of summer and Annie Laurie. Part 5 continued. Abide with me. Abide with me by Henry Francis Light, 1793 to 1847, appeals to our natural longing for the unchanging and to our love of security. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see, O oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Henry Francis Light Lead, Kindly Light Lead, Kindly Light by John Henry Newman, 1801-1890, was written when Cardinal Newman was in the stress and strain of perplexity and mental distress and bodily pain. The poem has been a star in the darkness to thousands. It was the favorite poem of President McKinley. Lead, Kindly Light, amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I loved to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. I loved the garish day, and in spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years." So long thy power hath blessed me, sure it still will lead me on, O'er moor and fen, o'er crag and torrent, till the night is gone. And with the morn those angel faces smile, Which I have loved long since, and lost a while. John Henry Newman THE LAST ROSE OF SUMMER Tis the last rose of summer left blooming alone, all her lovely companions are faded and gone. No flower of her kindred, no rosebud is nigh, To reflect back her blushes, or give sigh for sigh. I'll not leave thee, thou lone one, to pine on the stem. Since the lovely are sleeping, go, sleep thou with them. Thus kindly I scatter thy leaves o'er the bed Where thy mates of the garden lie scentless and dead. So soon may I follow when friendships decay, and from love's shining circle the gems drop away. When true hearts lie withered, and fond ones are flown, Oh, who would inhabit this bleak world alone? Thomas More Annie Laurie Annie Laurie finds a place in this collection because it is the most popular song on earth. Written by William Douglas Maxwellton Bray's are bonnie, where early falls the dew, and it's there that Annie Laurie gid me her promise true, gid me her promise true, which ne'er forgot will be, and for bonnie Annie Laurie I'd lay me down and dee. 
Her brow is like the snawdrift, her throat is like the swan, Her face it is the fairest that e'er the sun shone on, That e'er the sun shone on, and dark blue is her e, And for Bonnie Annie Laurie I'd lay me down and dee. Like dew on the goan dying is the fa o' her fairy feet, Like the winds in summer sighing her voice is low and sweet, Her voice is low and sweet, and she's all the world to me, and for Bonnie Annie Laurie I'd lay me down and dee. William Douglas. End of section fifty five. Read by Kara Schallenberg on November twenty second, two thousand six, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section fifty six. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems The Ship of State, America, and The Landing of the Pilgrims. Part five continued. The Ship of State. A president of a well known college writes me that The Ship of State was his favorite poem when he was a boy and did more than any other to shape his course in life. Sail on, sail on, O ship of state, sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. We know what master laid thy keel, what workmen wrought thy ribs of steel, who made each mast and sail and rope, what anvils rang, what hammers beat, in what a forge and what a heat were forged the anchors of thy hope. Fear not each sudden sound and shock, tis of the wave, and not the rock. Tis but the flapping of the sail, and not a rent made by the gale. In spite of rock and tempest roar, in spite of false lights on the shore, sail on, nor fear to breast the sea. Our hearts, our hopes, are all with thee. Our hearts, our hopes, our prayers, our tears, Our faith, triumphant o'er our fears, Are all with thee, are all with thee. Henry W. Longfellow America America by Samuel Francis Smith, 1808-1895, Is a good poem to learn as a poem, Regardless of the fact that every American who can sing it ought to know it, that he may join in the chorus when patriotic celebrations call for it. My boys love to repeat the entire poem, but I often find masses of people trying to sing it, knowing only one stanza. It is our national anthem, and a part of our education to know every word of it. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. My native country, thee, land of the noble free, thy name I love. I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods and templed hills, my heart with rapture thrills, like that above. Let music swell the breeze, and ring from all the trees, sweet freedom's song. Let mortal tongues awake, let all that breathe partake, let rocks their silence break, the sound prolong. 
our father's god to thee author of liberty to thee we sing long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light protect us by thy might great god our king s f smith the landing of the pilgrims the landing of the pilgrims by felicia hammonds seventeen forty nine to eighteen thirty five is a poem that children want when they study the early history of America. The breaking waves dashed high on a stern and rock-bound coast, and the woods against a stormy sky their giant branches tossed. And the heavy night hung dark, the hills and waters o'er, when a band of exiles moored their bark on the wild New England shore. Not as the conqueror comes, they, the true-hearted, came, Not with the roll of the stirring drums, And the trumpet that sings of fame. Not as the flying come, in silence and in fear, They shook the depths of the desert gloom, With their hymns of lofty cheer. Amid the storm they sang, and the stars heard, and the sea, And the sounding aisles of the dim woods rang To the anthem of the free. The ocean eagle soared from his nest by the white wave's foam, and the rocking pines of the forest roared. This was their welcome home. There were men with hoary hair amid that pilgrim band. Why had they come to wither there, away from their childhood's land? There was woman's fearless eye, lit by her deep love's truth. There was manhood's brow serenely high, and the fiery heart of youth. What sought they thus afar, bright jewels of the mine, the wealth of seas, the spoils of war? They sought a faith's pure shrine. I call it holy ground, the soil where first they trod. They have left unstained what there they found, freedom to worship God. Felicia Hemans End of section 56 Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 22, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 57, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. The Lotus Eaters and Moli. Part 5 continued. The Lotus Eaters. The main idea in The Lotus Eaters is, are we justified in running away from unpleasant duties, or is insensibility justifiable? Laddie, do you recollect learning this poem after we had read the story of Odysseus? The struggle of the soul urged to action, but held back by the spirit of self-indulgence. These were the points we discussed. "'Courage,' he said, and pointed toward the land. "'This mounting wave will roll us shoreward soon.' In the afternoon they came unto a land in which it seemed always afternoon. All round the coast the languid air did swoon, breathing like one that hath a weary dream." Full-faced above the valley stood the moon, And like a downward smoke the slender stream Along the cliff to fall and pause and fall did seem. A land of streams, some like a downward smoke, 
slow-dropping veils of thinnest lawn did go, and some through wavering lights and shadows broke, rolling a slumbrous sheet of foam below. They saw the gleaming river seaward flow from the inner land, far off three mountain-tops, three silent pinnacles of aged snow, stood sunset flushed and dewed with showery drops, up clomb the shadowy pine above the woven copse. The charmed sunset lingered low adown, in the red west, through mountain clefts the dale was seen far inland, and the yellow down, bordered with palm, and many a winding vale and meadow, set with slender gallingale, a land where all things always seemed the same, and round about the keel with faces pale, dark faces pale against that rosy flame, the mild-eyed, melancholy, lotus-eaters came. Branches they bore of that enchanted stem, laden with flower and fruit, whereof they gave to each, but whoso did receive of them and taste, to him the gushing of the wave, far, far away, did seem to mourn and rave on alien shores, and if his fellow spake his voice was thin as voices from the grave, and deep asleep he seemed, yet all awake, and music in his ears his beating heart did make. They sat them down upon the yellow sand, between the sun and moon upon the shore, and sweet it was to dream of fatherland, of child and wife and slave, but evermore most weary seemed the sea, weary the oar. Weary the wandering fields of barren foam. Then some one said, we will return no more, and all at once they sang, Our island home is far beyond the wave, we will no longer roam. Alfred Tennyson Moli Moli, by Edith M. Thomas, born 1850, is the best possible presentation of the value of integrity. This poem ranks with Sir Galahad, if not above it. It is a stroke of genius, and every American ought to be proud of it. Every time my boys read Odysseus, or the story of Ulysses with me, we read or learn moly. The plant moly grows in the United States, as well as in Europe. Traveller, pluck a stem of moly, if thou touch at Circe's isle, Hermes moly growing solely to undo enchanter's wile. When she proffers thee her chalice, wine and spices mixed with malice, when she smites thee with her staff to transform thee, do thou laugh. Safe thou art if thou but bear the least leaf of moly rare. Close it grows beside her portal, springing from a stock immortal. Yes, and often has the witch sought to tear it from its niche, but to thwart her cruel will the wise god renews it still. Though it grows in soil perverse, heaven hath been its jealous nurse, and a flower of snowy mark springs from root and sheathing dark. Kingly safeguard, only herb, that can brutish passion curb. Some do think its name should be shield-heart, white integrity. Traveller, pluck a stem of moly, if thou touch at Circe's isle, Hermes moly, growing solely, to undo Enchanter's wile. Edith M. Thomas. 
End of section 57. Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 22, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 58. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. Cupid Drowned. Cupid Stung. Cupid and My Composby. And A Ballad for a Boy. Part 5 Continued. Cupid Drowned. Cupid Drowned, Cupid Stung, and Cupid and My Camposby are three dainty poems recommended by Mrs. Margaret Mooney of the Albany Teachers College in her Foundation Studies in Literature. Children are always delighted with them. T'other day, as I was twining roses for a crown to dine in, what of all things mid the heap should I light on fast asleep but the little desperate elf, the tiny traitor, love himself? By the wings I picked him up like a bee, and in a cup of my wine I plunged and sank him. Then what do you think I did? I drank him. Faith, I thought him dead, not he. There he lives with tenfold glee, and now this moment with his wings I feel him tickling my heart-strings. Lee Hunt Cupid Stung Cupid once upon a bed of roses laid his weary head, luckless urchin not to see within the leaves a slumbering bee. The bee awaked, with anger wild, the bee awaked and stung the child. Loud and piteous are his cries, to Venus quick he runs, he flies. O oh, mother, I am wounded through, I die with pain, in sooth I do. Stung by some little angry thing, some serpent on a tiny wing. A bee it was, for once I know I heard a rustic call it so. Thus he spoke, and she the while heard him, with a soothing smile. Then said, My infant, if so much thou feel the little wild bee's touch, How must the heart, ah, Cupid, be, the hapless heart that's stung by thee? Thomas More Cupid and My Composby Cupid and My Composby played at cards for kisses. Cupid paid. He stakes his quiver, bow, and arrows, his mother's doves, and team of sparrows. Loses them, too, then down he throws the coral of his lips, the rose growing on his cheek, but none knows how. With them the crystal of his brow, and then the dimple of his chin. All these did My Composby win. At last he set her both his eyes. She won, and Cupid blind did rise. O oh, love, hath she done this to thee? What shall, alas, become of me? John Lyly A Ballad for a Boy Violo Roseboro, one of our good authors, brought to me A Ballad for a Boy, saying, I believe it is one of the poems that every child ought to know. It is included in this compilation out of respect to her opinion, and also because the boys to whom I have read it said it was great. The lesson in it is certainly fine. Men who are true men want to settle their own disputes by a hand-to-hand -hand fight, 
but they will always help each other when a third party or the elements interfere. Humanity is greater than human interests. When George the Third was reigning a hundred years ago, he ordered Captain Farmer to chase the foreign foe. "'You're not afraid of shot,' said he. "'You're not afraid of wreck. "'So cruise about the west of France "'in the frigate called Quebec.' "'Quebec was once a Frenchman's town, "'but twenty years ago King George the Second "'sent a man called General Wolfe, you know, "'to clamber up a precipice and look into Quebec, "'as you'd look down a hatchway when standing on the deck. "'If Wolfe could beat the Frenchmen then, "'so you can beat them now,' Before he got inside the town he died, I must allow, but since the town was won for us it is a lucky name, and you'll remember Wolfe's good work, and you shall do the same. Then Farmer said, I'll try, sir, and Farmer bowed so low that George could see his pigtail, tied in a velvet bow. George gave him his commission, and that it might be safer, signed, King of Britain, King of France, and sealed it with a wafer. Then proud was Captain Farmer in a frigate of his own, and grander on his quarter-deck than George upon his throne. He'd two guns in his cabin, and on the spar-deck ten, and twenty on the gun-deck, and more than ten score men. And as a huntsman scours the brakes with sixteen brace of dogs, with two and thirty cannon, the ship explored the fogs. From Cape La Hogue to Ushant, from Roquefort to Belle Isle, she hunted game till reef and mud were rubbing on her keel. The fogs are dried, the frigate's side is bright with melting tar, the lad up in the foretop sees square white sails afar. The east wind drives three square-sailed masts from out the Breton Bay, and, "'Clear for action!' farmer shouts, and reefers yell, "'Hooray!' The Frenchman's captain had a name I wish I could pronounce— a Breton gentleman was he, and wholly free from bounce, one like those famous fellows who died by guillotine, for honour and the fleur-de-lis, and Antoinette the queen. The Catholic for Louis, the Protestant for George, each captain drew as bright a sword as saintly smiths could forge, and both were simple seamen, but both could understand how each was bound to win or die for flag and native land. The French ship was La Surveillante, which means the watchful maid. She folded up her headdress and began to cannonade. Her hull was clean and ours was foul. We had to spread more sail. On canvas stays and topsail yards her bullets came like hail. Sore smitten were both captains and many lads beside, and still to cut our rigging the foreign gunners tried. A sail-clad spar came flapping down athwart a blazing gun. We could not quench the rushing flames, and so the Frenchman won— our quarter-deck was crowded, the waist was all aglow, men hung upon the taffrail half-scorched, but loath to go. Our captain sat where once he stood, and would not quit his chair. He bade his comrades leap for life and leave him bleeding there. The guns were hushed on either side, the Frenchmen lowered boats. They flung us planks and hen-coops and everything that floats. They risked their lives, good fellows, to bring their rivals' aid— "'Twas by the conflagration the peace was strangely made. "'La Surveillante was like a sieve. "'The victors had no rest. "'They had to dodge the east wind to reach the port of Brest. "'And where the waves leapt lower and the riddled ship went slower, "'in triumph yet in funeral guise 
came fisher-boats to tow her. They dealt with us as brethren, they mourned for farmer dead, and as the wounded captives passed each Breton bowed the head. Then spoke the French lieutenant, "'Twas fire that won, not we. You never struck your flag to us, you'll go to England free. "'Twas the sixth day of October, 1779, a year when nations ventured against us to combine. Quebec was burned and farmer slain, by us remembered not, but thanks be to the French book wherein they're not forgot. Now you, if you've to fight the French, my youngster, bear in mind, those seamen of King Louis so chivalrous and kind, think of the Breton gentlemen who took our lads to breast, and treat some rescued Breton as a comrade and a guest. End of section 58. Read by Kara Schallenberg on November 22, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 59. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, The Skeleton in Armor. Part 5 continued. The Skeleton in Armor The Skeleton in Armor, by Longfellow, 1807-1882, is a boy's poem. It is pure literature, and good history. Speak, speak, thou fearful guest, who, with thy hollow breast, still in rude armour dressed, com'st to daunt me, wrapped not in eastern balms, but with thy fleshless palms stretched, as if asking alms, why dost thou haunt me? Then from those cavernous eyes pale flashes seem to rise, as when the northern skies gleam in December, and like the water's flow under December's snow came a dull voice of woe from the heart's chamber. I was a Viking old, my deeds, though manifold, no scald in song has told, no saga taught thee. Take heed that in thy verse thou dost the tale rehearse, else dread a dead man's curse. For this I sought thee. Far in the northern land, by the wild Baltic strand, I with my childish hand tamed the Gerfalcon and with my skates fast bound skimmed the half-frozen sound that the poor whimpering hound trembled to walk on. Oft to his frozen lair tracked I the grizzly bear, while from my path the hare fled like a shadow. Oft through the forest dark followed the werewolf's bark, until the soaring lark sang from the meadow. But when I older grew, joining a corsair's crew, o'er the dark sea I flew with the marauders. Wild was the life we led, many the souls that sped, many the hearts that bled by our stern orders. Many a wassail bout wore the long winter out, often our midnight shout set the cocks crowing, as we the berserk's tail measured in cups of ale, draining the oaken pail filled to overflowing. Once, as I told in glee tales of the stormy sea, soft eyes did gaze on me, burning yet tender. And as the white stars shine on the dark Norway pine, 
on that dark heart of mine fell their soft splendour. I wooed the blue-eyed maid, yielding yet half afraid, and in the forest's shade our vows were plighted. Under its loosened vest fluttered her little breast, like birds within their nest, by the hawk frighted. Bright in her father's hall shields gleamed upon the wall, loud sang the minstrels all, chanting his glory. When of old Hildebrand I asked his daughter's hand, mute did the minstrels stand to hear my story. While the brown ale he quaffed, loud then the champion laughed, and as the wind gusts waft the sea-foam brightly, so the loud laugh of scorn out of those lips unshorn from the deep-drinking horn blew the foam lightly. She was a prince's child, I but a viking wild, and though she blushed and smiled, I was discarded. Should not the dove so white follow the sea-mew's flight? Why did they leave that night her nest unguarded? Scarce had I put to sea, bearing the maid with me, fairest of all was she among the Norsemen. When on the white sea-strand, waving his armed hand, saw we old Hildebrand with twenty horsemen. Then launched they to the blast, bent like a reed each mast, yet we were gaining fast, when the wind failed us, and with a sudden flaw came round the gusty scaw, so that our foe we saw laugh as he hailed us. And as to catch the gale, round veered the flapping sail, death was the helmsman's hail, death without quarter. Midships with iron keel struck we her ribs of steel, down her black hulk did reel through the black water. As with his wings aslant sails the fierce cormorant, seeking some rocky haunt, with his prey laden, so toward the open main, beating to sea again, through the wild hurricane, bore I the maiden. Three weeks we westward bore, and when the storm was o'er, cloud-like we saw the shore stretching to leeward. There, for my lady's bower, built I the lofty tower, which to this very hour stands looking seaward. There lived we many years. Time dried the maiden's tears. She had forgot her fears. She was a mother. Death closed her mild blue eyes. Under that tower she lies. Ne'er shall the sun arise on such another. Still grew my bosom then, still as a stagnant fen, Hateful to me were men, the sunlight hateful. In the vast forest here, clad in my warlike gear, Fell I upon my spear, O oh, death was grateful. Thus seemed with many scars, bursting these prison bars, Up to its native stars my soul ascended. There from the flowing bowl deep drinks the warrior's soul, Skoll to the Northland, skoll! Thus the tale ended. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow End of section 59 Read by Kara Schallenberg on December 30th, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 60 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg 
This section contains just one poem, The Revenge, a ballad of the fleet. Part 5 continued. The Revenge, a ballad of the fleet. Tennyson's The Revenge finds a welcome here because it is a favorite with teachers of elocution and their audiences. It teaches us to hold life cheap when the nation's safety is at stake. At Flores in the Azores, Sir Richard Grenville lay, and a pinnace like a fluttered bird came flying from away. Spanish ships of war at sea, we have sighted fifty-three. Then swear Lord Thomas Howard, For God, I am no coward, but I cannot meet them here, for my ships are out of gear, and the half my men are sick, I must fly, but follow quick. We are six ships of the line, can we fight with fifty-three? Then spake Sir Richard Grenville, I know you are no coward, you fly them for a moment, to fight with them again. But I've ninety men and more that are lying sick ashore, I should count myself the coward if I left them, my lord Howard, to these inquisition dogs and the devildoms of Spain. So lord Howard passed away with five ships of war that day, till he melted like a cloud in the silent summer heaven. But Sir Richard bore in hand all his sick men from the land, very carefully and slow, men of Bidford in Devon, and we laid them on the ballast down below, for we brought them all aboard, and they blessed him in their pain that they were not left to Spain, to the thumbscrew and the stake, for the glory of the Lord. He had only a hundred seamen to work the ship and to fight, and he sailed away from Flores till the Spaniard came in sight, with his huge sea-castles heaving upon the weather-bow. Shall we fight, or shall we fly? Good Sir Richard, tell us now, for to fight is but to die. There'll be little of us left by the time this sun be set, and Sir Richard said again, We be all good Englishmen, let us bang these dogs of Seville, the children of the devil, for I never turned my back upon Don or devil yet. Sir Richard spoke, and he laughed, and we roared a hurrah, and so the little revenge ran on sheer into the heart of the foe, with her hundred fighters on deck and her ninety sick below, for half of their fleet to the right and half to the left were seen, and the little revenge ran on through the long sea-lane between. Thousands of their soldiers looked down from their decks and laughed, Thousands of their seamen made mock at the mad little craft, running on and on till delayed by their mountain-like Saint-Philippe, that of fifteen hundred tons, and upshadowing high above us with her yawning tiers of guns, took the breath from our sails, and we stayed. And while now the great Saint-Philippe hung above us like a cloud, whence the thunderbolt will fall, long and loud, Four galleons drew away from the Spanish fleet that day, and two upon the larboard and two upon the starboard lay, and the battle-thunder broke from them all. But anon the great San Philip she bethought herself and went, having that within her womb that had left her ill content, and the rest they came aboard us, and they fought us hand to hand, for a dozen times they came with their pikes and musketeers, and a dozen times we shook em off, as a dog that shakes his ears when he leaps from the water to the land. 
and the sun went down, and the stars came out far over the summer sea, but never a moment ceased the fight of the one and the fifty-three. Ship after ship, the whole night long, their high-built galleons came, ship after ship, the whole night long, with her battle thunder and flame. Ship after ship, the whole night long, drew back with her dead and her shame, for some were sunk and many were shattered, and so could fight us no more. God of battles, was ever a battle like this in the world before? For he said, Fight on, fight on, though his vessel was all but a wreck, and it chanced that, when half of the short summer night was gone, with a grisly wound to be dressed, he had left the deck, but a bullet struck him that was dressing it suddenly dead, and himself he was wounded again in the side and the head, and he said, Fight on, fight on! And the night went down, and the sun smiled out far over the summer sea, and the Spanish fleet with broken sides lay round us all in a ring, but they dared not touch us again, for they feared that we still could sting. So they watched what the end would be, and we had not fought them in vain, but in perilous plight were we, seeing forty of our poor hundred were slain, and half of the rest of us maimed for life in the crash of the cannonades and the desperate strife. And the sick men down in the hold were most of them stark and cold, and the pikes were all broken or bent, and the powder was all of it spent, and the masts and the rigging were lying over the side. But Sir Richard cried in his English pride, We have fought such a fight for a day and a night as may never be fought again. We have won great glory, my men, and a day less or more at sea or ashore. We die, does it matter when? Sink me into the ship, Master Gunner, sink her, splitter in twain. Fall into the hands of God, not into the hands of Spain. And the gunner said, Aye, aye. But the seamen made reply, We have children, we have wives, and the Lord hath spared our lives. We will make the Spaniard promise, if we yield, to let us go. We shall live to fight again, and to strike another blow. And the lion lay there dying, and they yielded to the foe. And the stately Spanish men to their flagship bore him then, where they laid him by the mast, old Sir Richard caught at last, and they praised him to his face with their courtly foreign grace. But he rose upon their decks, and he cried, I have fought for queen and faith like a valiant man and true. I have only done my duty as a man is bound to do. With a joyful spirit I, Sir Richard Grenville, die. And he fell upon their decks, and he died. And they stared at the dead that had been so valiant and true, and had holden the power and glory of Spain so cheap, that he dared her with one little ship and his English few. Was he devil or man? He was devil for aught they knew, but they sank his body with honour down into the deep, and they manned the revenge with a swarthier alien crew, and away she sailed with her loss and longed for her own. When a wind from the land they had ruined awoke from sleep, and the water began to heave and the weather to moan. And ere ever that evening ended a great gale blew, and a wave like the wave that is raised by an earthquake grew, till it smote on their hulls and their sails and their masts and their flags, and the whole sea plunged and fell on the shot-shattered navy of Spain, 
and the little revenge herself went down by the island crags, to be lost evermore in the main. Alfred Tennyson End of section 60 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org On January 7th, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 61, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just two poems, Sir Galahad and A Name in the Sand. Part 5 continued. Sir Galahad. Sir Galahad is the most moral and upright of all the knights of the round table. The strong lines of the poem are the strong lines of human destiny. My good blade carves the casks of men, my tough lance thrusteth sure. My strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. The shattering trumpet shrilleth high, the hard brands shiver on the steel. The splintered spear-shafts crack and fly, the horse and rider reel. They reel, they roll in clanging lists, and when the tide of combat stands, perfume and flowers fall in showers that lightly rain from ladies' hands. How sweet are looks that ladies bend on whom their favours fall! For them I battle till the end to save from shame and thrall. But all my heart is drawn above, my knees are bowed in crypt and shrine, I never felt the kiss of love, nor maiden's hand in mine. More bounteous aspects on me beam, me mightier transports move and thrill. So keep I fair, through faith and prayer, a virgin heart in work and will. When down the stormy crescent goes, a light before me swims, Between dark stems the forest glows, I hear a noise of hymns. Then by some secret shrine I ride, I hear a voice, but none are there. The stalls are void, the doors are wide, the tapers burning fair. Fair gleams the snowy altar-cloth, the silver vessels sparkle clean. The shrill bell rings, the censer swings, and solemn chants resound between. Sometimes on lonely mountain mirrors I find a magic bark. I leap on board, no helmsman steers, I float till all is dark. A gentle sound, an awful light, three angels bear the holy grail, with folded feet in stoles of white, on sleeping wings they sail. Ah, blessed vision, blood of God, my spirit beats her mortal bars, as down dark tides the glory slides, and star-like mingles with the stars. When on my goodly charger borne through dreaming towns I go, the cock crows ere the Christmas morn, the streets are dumb with snow. The tempest crackles on the leads, and ringing springs from brand and mail, but o'er the dark a glory spreads, and gilds the driving hail. I leave the plain, I climb the height, no branchy thicket shelter yields. But blessed forms in whistling storms, Fly o'er waste fens and windy fields. 
A maiden knight, to me is given such hope I know not fear. I yearn to breathe the airs of heaven that often meet me here. I muse on joy that will not cease, pure spaces clothed in living beams, pure lilies of eternal peace, whose odours haunt my dreams. And stricken by an angel's hand, this mortal armour that I wear, this weight and size, this heart and eyes, are touched, are turned to finest air. The clouds are broken in the sky, and through the mountain walls a rolling organ harmony swells up and shakes and falls. Then move the trees, the copses nod, wings flutter, voices hover clear. O just and faithful knight of God, ride on, the prize is near. So pass I hostel, hall, and grange, by bridge and ford, by park and pale, all armed I ride, whate'er betide, until I find the Holy Grail. Alfred Tennyson A Name in the Sand A Name in the Sand by Hannah Flagg Gould, 1789-1865, is a poem to correct our ready overestimate of our own importance. Alone I walked the ocean strand, a pearly shell was in my hand. I stooped and wrote upon the sand my name, the year, the day. As onward from the spot I passed, one lingering look behind I cast. A wave came rolling high and fast, and washed my lines away. And so, methought, twill shortly be, with every mark on earth from me, a wave of dark oblivion sea will sweep across the place where I have trod the sandy shore of time and been to be no more of me, my day, the name I bore, to leave nor track nor trace. And yet, with him who counts the sands and holds the waters in his hands, I know a lasting record stands inscribed against my name. Of all this mortal part has wrought, of all this thinking soul has thought, and from these fleeting moments caught for glory or for shame. Hannah Flagg Gould End of section 61 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 7, 2007 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 62 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains the following poems The Voice of Spring and The Forsaken Merman Part 6 Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life, for which the first was made. THE VOICE OF SPRING The Voice of Spring by Felicia Hammonds, 1749-1835, becomes attractive as years go on. The line in this poem that captivated my youthful fancy was, The larch has hung all his tassels forth. The delight with which trees hang out their new little tassels every year is one of the charms of the pine family. John Burroughs sent us down a tiny hemlock that grew in our window-box at school for five years, 
and every spring it was a new joy on account of the fine, tender tassels. Mrs. Hemans has a vivid imagination, backed up by an abundant information. I come, I come, ye have called me long, I come o'er the mountains with light and song. Ye may trace my step o'er the waking earth, by the winds which tell of the violet's birth, by the primrose stars in the shadowy grass, by the green leaves opening as I pass. I have breathed on the south, and the chestnut flowers by thousands have burst from the forest bowers, and the ancient graves and the fallen fanes are veiled with wreaths on Italian plains. But it is not for me in my hour of bloom to speak of the ruin or the tomb. I have looked o'er the hills of the stormy north, and the larch has hung all his tassels forth. The fisher is out on the sunny sea, and the reindeer bounds o'er the pastures free, and the pine has a fringe of softer green, and the moss looks bright where my step has been. I have sent through the wood-paths a glowing sigh, and called out each voice of the deep blue sky. From the night-birds lay through the starry time in the groves of the soft Hesperian clime, to the swan's wild note by the Iceland lakes, when the dark fir-branch into verdure breaks. From the streams and founts I have loosed the chain, they are sweeping on to the silvery main, they are flashing down from the mountain brows, they are flinging spray o'er the forest boughs, they are bursting fresh from their sparry caves, and the earth resounds with the joy of waves. Felicia Hammonds The Forsaken Merman The Forsaken Merman by Matthew Arnold, 1822-1888, is a poem that I do not expect children to appreciate fully, even when they care enough for it to learn it. It is too long for most children to commit to memory, and I generally assign one stanza to one pupil, and another to another pupil, until it is divided up among them. The poem is a masterpiece. Doubtless the poet meant to show that the forsaken merman had a greater soul to save than the woman who sought to save her soul by deserting natural duty. Salvation does not come through the faith that builds itself at the expense of love. Come, dear children, let us away, down and away below. Now my brothers call from the bay, now the great winds shoreward blow, now the salt tides seaward flow, now the wild white horses play, champ and chafe and toss in the spray. Children dear, let us away, this way, this way. Call her once before you go, call once yet, in a voice that she will know. Margaret, Margaret! Children's voices should be dear, call once more to a mother's ear. Children's voices, wild with pain, surely she will come again. Call her once, and come away. This way, this way. Mother dear, we cannot stay. The wild white horses foam and fret. Margaret, Margaret. Come, dear children, come away down, call no more. One last look at the white-walled town, and the little grey church on the windy shore. Then come down, 
She will not come, though you call all day. Come away, come away. Children dear, was it yesterday we heard the sweet bells over the bay? In the caverns where we lay, through the surf and through the swell, the far-off sound of a silver bell? Sand-strewn caverns, cool and deep, where the winds are all asleep, where the spent lights quiver and gleam, where the salt weed sways in the stream, where the sea-beasts, ranged all round, feed in the ooze of their pasture-ground, where the sea-snakes coil and twine, dry their mail and bask in the brine, where great whales come sailing by, sail and sail, with unshut eye, round the world for ever and aye. When did music come this way? Children dear, was it yesterday? Children dear, was it yesterday? Call yet once, that she went away. Once she sat with you and me, on a red-gold throne in the heart of the sea, and the youngest sat on her knee. She combed its bright hair, and she tended it well, when down swung the sound of a far-off bell. She sighed, she looked up through the clear green sea. She said, I must go, for my kinsfolk pray in the little grey church on the shore to-day. T'will be Easter time in the world, ah me, and I lose my poor soul, merman, here with thee. I said, Go up, dear heart, through the waves, say thy prayer, and come back to the kind sea-caves. She smiled, she went up through the surf in the bay. Children dear, was it yesterday? Children dear, were we long alone? The sea grows stormy, the little ones moan. Long prayers, I said, in the world they say. Come, I said, and we rose through the surf in the bay. We went up the beach by the sandy down, where the sea-stalks bloom to the white-walled town. Through the narrow-paved streets, where all was still, to the little grey church on the windy hill. From the church came a murmur of folk at their prayers, but we stood without, in the cold blowing airs. We climbed on the graves, on the stones worn with rains, and we gazed up the aisle through the small leaded panes. She sat by the pillar, we saw her clear. Margaret, hist, come quick, we are here. Dear heart, I said, we are long alone, the sea grows stormy, the little ones moan. But, ah, she gave me never a look, for her eyes were sealed to the holy book. Loud prays the priest, shut stands the door. Come away, children, call no more. Come away, come down, call no more. Down, 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 down to the depths of the sea, she sits at her wheel in the humming town, singing most joyfully. Hark what she sings! O oh joy, O oh joy, for the humming street, and the child with its toy, for the priest, and the bell, and the holy well, for the wheel where I spun, and the blessed light of the sun. And so she sings her fill, singing most joyfully, till the spindle drops from her hand, and the whizzing wheel stands still. She steals to the window and looks at the sand, and over the sand at the sea, and her eyes are set in a stare, and anon there breaks a sigh, and anon there drops a tear from a sorrow-clouded eye, and a heart sorrow-laden, a long, long sigh, 
for the cold strange eyes of a little mermaiden, and the gleam of her golden hair. Come away, away, children, come, children, come down, the hoarse wind blows colder, light shine in the town. She will start from her slumber when gusts shake the door. She will hear the winds howling, will hear the waves roar. We shall see, while above us the waves roar and whirl, a ceiling of amber, a pavement of pearl. Singing, Here came a mortal, but faithless was she, and alone dwell for ever the kings of the sea. But children, at midnight, when soft the winds blow, when clear falls the moonlight, when spring-tides are low, when sweet airs come seaward from heaths starred with broom, and high rocks throw mildly on the blanched sands a gloom, up the still glistening beaches, up the creeks we will hie, over banks of bright seaweed the ebb-tide leaves dry, we will gaze from the sand-hills at the white sleeping town, at the church on the hillside, and then come back down, singing, There dwells a loved one, but cruel is she. She left lonely forever the kings of the sea. Matthew Arnold End of section 62 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 7, 2007 in Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 63, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. The Banks, Odoon, The Light of Other Days, and My Own Shall Come to Me. Part 6 continued. The Banks, Odoon. The Banks o' Doon by Robert Burns, 1759-1796. Bonnie Doon is in the southwestern part of Scotland. Robert Burns's old home is close to it. The house has low walls, a thatched roof, and only two rooms. Alloway Kirk and the two bridges so famous in Robert Burns' verse are nearby. This is an enchanted land, and the Scotch people for miles around air speak of the poet with sincere affection. Burns, more than any other poet, has thrown the enchantment of poetry over his own locality. Ye banks and braes, O bonnie doon, how can ye bloom so fair? How can ye chant, ye little birds, and eyes so full o' care? Thou'lt break my heart, thou bonnie bird, that sings upon the bough. Thou minds me o' the happy days, when my false love was true. Thou'lt break my heart, thou bonny bird, that sings beside thy mate, For say I sat, and say I sang, and wist now my fate. Aft hay I roved by bonny doon, to see the woodbine twine, And ilka bird sang o' its love, and say did I o' mine. Wi' lightsome heart I pulled a rose fra off its thorny tree, And my false lover staw the rose, but left the thorn wi' me. Robert Burns The Light of Other Days Oft in the stilly night, ere slumber's chain has bound me, 
fond memory brings the light of other days around me. The smiles, the tears of boyhood's years, the words of love then spoken, the eyes that shone, now dimmed and gone, the cheerful hearts now broken. Thus in the stilly night, ere slumber's chain has bound me, sad memory brings the light of other days around me. When I remember all the friends so linked together, I've seen around me fall like leaves in wintry weather, I feel like one who treads alone some banquet-hall deserted, whose lights are fled, whose garlands dead, and all but he departed. Thus in the stilly night, ere slumber's chain has bound me, sad memory brings the light of other days around me. Thomas Moore my own shall come to me. If John Burroughs had never written any other poem than My Own Shall Come to Me, he would have stood to all ages as one of the greatest of American poets. The poem is most characteristic of the tall, majestic, slow-going poet and naturalist. There is no greater line in Greek or English literature than I stand amid the eternal ways. Serene I fold my hands and wait, nor care for wind, nor tide, nor sea. I rave no more against time or fate, for lo, my own shall come to me. I stay my haste, I make delays, for what avails this eager pace? I stand amid the eternal ways, and what is mine shall know my face. Asleep awake, by night or day, the friends I seek are seeking me. No wind can drive my bark astray, nor change the tide of destiny. What matter if I stand alone? I wait with joy the coming years. My heart shall reap when it has sown, and gather up its fruit of tears. The stars come nightly to the sky, the tidal wave comes to the sea, nor time, nor space, nor deep, nor high can keep my own away from me. The waters know their own, and draw the brook that springs in yonder heights. So flows the good with equal law, unto the soul of pure delights. John Burroughs End of section 63 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 9, 2007 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 64 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains two poems, Ode to a Skylark and The Sands of Dee. Part 6 continued Ode to a Skylark Ode to a Skylark by Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1792-1822, is usually assigned to grammar grades of schools. It is included here out of respect to a boy of eleven years, who was more impressed with these lines than with any other lines in any poem. Hail to thee, blithe spirit! Bird thou never wert! that from heaven or near it pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. Higher still and higher from the earth thou springest, like a cloud of fire, the blue deep thou wingest, 
and singing still dost soar, and soaring ever singest. In the golden lightning of the sunken sun, o'er which clouds are brightening, thou dost float and run, like an unbodied joy, whose race is just begun. The pale purple even melts around thy flight, like a star of heaven in the broad daylight. Thou art unseen, but yet I hear thy shrill delight. All the earth and air with thy voice is loud, as, when night is bare, from one lonely cloud the moon rains out her beams, and heaven is overflowed. What thou art we know not, what is most like thee? From rainbow clouds there flow not drops so bright to see as from thy presence showers a rain of melody. Like a poet hidden in the light of thought, singing hymns unbidden till the world is wrought to sympathy with hopes and fears it heeded not. Teach us, sprite or bird, what sweet thoughts are thine. I have never heard praise of love or wine that panted forth a flood of rapture so divine. Chorus hymeneal or triumphal chant, matched with thine, would be all but an empty vaunt, a thing wherein we feel there is some hidden want. What objects are the fountains of thy happy strain? What fields or waves or mountains? What shapes of sky or plain? What love of thine own kind? What ignorance of pain? Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know. Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. The world should listen then, as I am listening now. Percy Bysshe Shelley THE SANDS OF Dee. I have often had the pleasure of riding across the coast from Chester, England, to Rill, on the north coast of Wales, where stretch the sands of Dee. These purple sands at low tide stretch off into the sea miles away, and are said to be full of quicksands. O oh, Mary, go and call the cattle home, and call the cattle home, and call the cattle home across the sands of Dee. The western wind was wild and dark with foam, and all alone went she. The western tide crept up along the sand, and o'er and o'er the sand, and round and round the sand, as far as I could see. The rolling mist came down and hid the land, and never home came she. Oh, is it weed or fish or floating hair, a tress of golden hair, a drowned maiden's hair above the nets at sea? Was never salmon yet that shone so fair among the stakes on Dee. They rowed her in across the rolling foam, the cruel crawling foam, the cruel hungry foam, to her grave beside the sea. But still the boatmen hear her call the cattle home across the sands of Dee. Charles Kingsley End of section 64 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 9, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 65 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains the following poems. A Wish 
Lucy, Solitude, John Anderson, and The God of Music. Part six continued. A Wish. A Wish by Samuel Rogers, 1763 to 1855, and Lucy by Wordsworth, 1770 to 1850, are two gems that can be valued only for the spirit of quiet and modesty diffused by them. Mine be a cot beside the hill, a beehive's hum shall soothe my ear. A willowy brook that turns a mill, with many a fall shall linger near. The swallow oft beneath my thatch shall twitter from her clay-built nest. Oft shall the pilgrim lift the latch, and share my meal, a welcome guest. Around my ivied porch shall spring each fragrant flower that drinks the dew, and Lucy at her wheel shall sing, in russet gown and apron blue. The village church among the trees, where first our marriage vows were given, with merry peals shall swell the breeze, and point with taper spire to heaven. S. Rogers Lucy She dwelt among the untrodden ways, beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise, and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be, but she is in her grave, and, oh, the difference to me! William Wordsworth Solitude Happy the man whose wish and care A few paternal acres bound, Content to breathe his native air In his own ground. Whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, Whose flocks supply him with attire, Whose trees in summer yield him shade, In winter fire. Blessed who can unconcernedly find Hours, days, and years slide soft away, In health of body, peace of mind, Quiet by day. Sound sleep by night, study and ease, Together mixed, sweet recreation, And innocence, which most does please, With meditation. Thus let me live, unseen, unknown, Thus unlamented let me die, Steal from the world, and not a stone, Tell where I lie. Alexander Pope John Anderson John Anderson by Robert Burns, 1759-1796 to This poem is included to please several teachers. John Anderson, my Joe, John, when we were first acquaint, Your locks were like the raven, your bonny brow was brent. But now your brow is bald, John, your locks are like the snow, But blessings on your frosty pow, John Anderson, my Joe. John Anderson, my Joe, John, we clam the hill together, and money a canty day, John, we've had we on another. Now we maun totter down, John, but hand in hand we'll go, and sleep together at the foot, John Anderson, my Joe. Robert Burns.
THE GOD OF MUSIC THE GOD OF MUSIC by Edith M. Thomas, an Ohio poetess now living. In this sonnet the poetess has touched the power of Wordsworth or Keats, and placed herself among the immortals. The God of Music dwelleth out of doors. All seasons through his minstrelsy we meet, breathing by field and covert haunting sweet, from organ-lofts in forests old he pours, a solemn harmony, on leafy floors to smooth autumnal pipes he moves his feet, or with the tingling plectrum of the sleet in winter keen beats out his thrilling scores. Leave me the reed unplucked beside the stream, and he will stoop and fill it with the breeze. Leave me the vial's frame in secret trees, unwrought, and it shall wake a druid theme. Leave me the whispering shell on narrowed shores. The god of music dwelleth out of doors. Edith M. Thomas End of section 65 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 9th, 2007 In Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 66 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains two poems, A Musical Instrument and The Brides of Enderby. Part 6 Continued A Musical Instrument A Musical Instrument by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, 1806-1861 this poem is the supreme masterpiece of Mrs. Browning. The prime thought in it is the sacrifice and pain that must go to make a poet of any genius. What was he doing, the great god Pan, down in the reeds by the river? Spreading ruin and scattering ban, splashing and paddling with hoofs of a goat, and breaking the golden lilies afloat with the dragonfly on the river. He tore out a reed, the great god Pan, from the deep cool bed of the river. The limpid water turbidly ran, and the broken lilies a-dying lay, and the dragonfly had fled away ere he brought it out of the river. High on the shore sat the great god Pan, while turbidly flowed the river, and hacked and hewed as a great god can with his hard bleak steel at the patient reed, till there was not a sign of a leaf indeed to prove it fresh from the river. He cut it short, did the great god Pan, how tall it stood in the river, then drew the pith, like the heart of a man, steadily from the outside ring, and notched the poor dry empty thing in holes, as he sat by the river. This is the way, laughed the great god Pan, laughed while he sat by the river. The only way, since gods began, to make sweet music they could succeed. Then, dropping his mouth to a hole in the reed, he blew in power by the river. Sweet, 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 O Pan, piercing sweet by the river. Blinding sweet, O great god Pan, the sun on the hill forgot to die, and the lilies revived, and the dragonfly came back to dream on the river. Yet half a beast is the great god Pan, to laugh as he sits by the river. Making a poet out of a man, 
the true gods sigh for the cost and pain, for the reed which grows never more again, as a reed with the reeds in the river. Elizabeth Barrett Browning The Brides of Enderby The Brides of Enderby by Jean Ingelow, 1830-1897 This poem is very dramatic, and the music of the refrain has done much to make it popular. But the pathos is that which endears it. The old mayor climbed the belfry tower, The ringers ran by two by three. Pull, if ye never pulled before, Good ringers, pull your best, quoth he. Play up, play up, O Boston bells, Ply all your changes, all your swells, Play up, the brides of Enderby. Men say it was a stolen tide, The lord that sent it, he knows all, but in mine ears doth still abide the message that the bells let fall. And there was naught of strange beside the flight of mews and peewits pied by millions crouched on the old sea-wall. I sat and spun within the door, my thread break off, I raised mine eyes, the level sun like ruddy ore lay sinking in the barren skies, and dark against day's golden death she moved where Lindus wandereth, my son's fair wife, Elizabeth. Cusha, 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 calling, ere the early dews were falling, far away I heard her song, Cusha, Cusha, all along, where the reedy Lindus floweth, 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 from the meads where Melick groweth, faintly came her milking song. Cusha, 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 calling, for the dews will soon be falling, Leave your meadow grasses mellow, mellow, mellow. Quit your cowslips, cowslips yellow. Come up, white foot, come up, light foot. Quit the stalks of parsley hollow, hollow, hollow. Come up, jetty, rise and follow. From the clovers lift your head. Come up, white foot, come up, light foot. Come up, jetty, rise and follow, jetty, to the milking shed. If it be long, I long ago, when I begin to think how long, Again I hear the Lindus flow, swift as an arrow, sharp and strong, and all the air, it seemeth me, been full of floating bells, saith she, that ring the tune of Enderby. All fresh the level pasture lay, and not a shadow mote be seen, save where full five good miles away the steeple towered from out the green, and lo, the great bell far and wide was heard in all the countryside, that Saturday, at eventide. The swan-herds, where their sedges are, moved on in sunset's golden breath. The shepherd-lads I heard afar, and my son's wife, Elizabeth, till floating o'er the grassy sea, came down that kindly message free, the brides of Mavis Enderby. Then some looked up into the sky, and all along where Lindus flows, to where the goodly vessels lie, and where the lordly steeple shows. They said, and why should this thing be? What danger lowers by land or sea? They ring the tune of Enderby. For evil news from Mablethorpe, Of pirate galleys warping down, For ships ashore beyond the scorp, They have not spared to wake the town. But while the west been red to see, And storms be none, and pirates flee, Why ring the brides of Enderby? I looked without, and lo, my son came riding down With might and main, he raised a shout as he drew on, 
till all the welkin rang again. Elizabeth, Elizabeth! A sweeter woman ne'er drew breath than my son's wife, Elizabeth. The old sea wall, he cried, is down, the rising tide comes on apace, and boats adrift in yonder town go sailing up the market place. He shook as one that looks on death. God save you, mother, straight he saith, where is my wife, Elizabeth? Good son, where Lindis winds her way, with her two bairns I marked her long, and ere yon bells began to play, afar I heard her milking song. He looked across the grassy lea, to right, to left. Ho, Enderby! They rang, the brides of Enderby. With that he cried and beat his breast, for lo, along the river's bed, a mighty eiger reared his crest, and up the Lindis raging sped, it swept with thunderous noises loud, shaped like a curling snow-white cloud, or like a demon in a shroud. And rearing, Lindis backward pressed, shook all her trembling banks amain, then madly at the eiger's breast flung up her weltering walls again. Then banks came down with ruin and rout, then beaten foam flew round about, then all the mighty floods were out. So far, so fast the eiger drave, the heart had barely time to beat, before a shallow, seething wave sobbed in the grasses at our feet. The feet had hardly time to flee, before it break against the knee, and all the world was in the sea. Upon the roof we sat that night, the noise of bells went sweeping by. I marked the lofty beacon light stream from the church-tower, red and high, a lurid mark and dread to see, and awesome bells they were to me, that in the dark rang Enderby. They rang the sailor-lads to guide from roof to roof who fearless rode, and I, my son was at my side, and yet the ruddy beacon glowed, and yet he moaned beneath his breath, O oh, come in life or come in death, O oh, lost my love, Elizabeth! And didst thou visit him no more? Thou didst, thou didst, my daughter dear, the waters laid thee at his door, ere yet the early dawn was clear. Thy pretty bairns in fast embrace, the lifted sun shone on thy face, down drifted to thy dwelling-place. That flow strewed wrecks about the grass, that ebb swept out the flocks to sea, a fatal ebb and flow, alas, to many more than mine and me, but each will mourn his own, she saith, and sweeter woman ne'er drew breath, than my son's wife, Elizabeth. I shall never hear her more by the reedy Lindis shore, Cusha, Cusha, Cusha calling, ere the early dews be falling. I shall never hear her song, Cusha, Cusha, all along, where the sunny Lindis floweth, goeth, floweth, from the meads where Melick groweth, when the water winding down, onward floweth to the town. I shall never see her more, where the reeds and rushes quiver, shiver, quiver, stand beside the sobbing river, sobbing, throbbing in its falling, to the sandy lonesome shore, I shall never hear her calling, leave your meadow grasses mellow, 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 quit your cowslips, cowslips yellow. Come up, white foot, come up, light foot, quit your pipes of parsley hollow, hollow, hollow. Come up, light foot, rise and follow, light foot, white foot. From your clovers lift the head. Come up, jetty, follow, follow, jetty. 
to the milking shed. Jean Ingelow. End of section sixty six. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January twelfth, two thousand seven, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 67. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains two poems, The Lie and L'Envoy. Part 6 continued. The Lie. The Lie by Sir Walter Raleigh, 1552-1618, is one of the strongest and most appealing poems a teacher can read to her pupils when teaching early American history. The poem is full of magnificent lines, such as, Go, soul, the body's guest. The poem never lacks an attentive audience of young people when correlated with the study of North Carolina and Sir Walter Raleigh. The solitary majestic character of Sir Walter Raleigh, his intrepidity while undergoing tortures inflicted by a cowardly king, the ring of indignation, all these make a weapon for him stronger than the axe that beheaded him. In this poem, he has the last word. Go, soul, the body's guest, upon a thankless errand. Fear not to touch the best. The truth shall be thy warrant. Go, since I needs must die, and give the world the lie. Go tell the court it glows and shines like rotten wood. Go tell the church it shows what's good and doth no good. If church and court reply, then give them both the lie. Tell potentates they live acting by others' actions, Not loved unless they give, Not strong but by their factions. If potentates reply, Give potentates the lie. Tell men of high condition That rule affairs of state, Their purpose is ambition, Their practice only hate. And if they once reply, Then give them all the lie. Tell zeal it lacks devotion, Tell love it is but lust, Tell time it is but motion, tell flesh it is but dust, and wish them not reply, for thou must give the lie. Tell wit how much it wrangles in tickle-points of niceness, tell wisdom she entangles herself in over-wiseness, and if they do reply, straight give them both the lie. Tell physic of her boldness, tell skill it is pretension, Tell charity of coldness, tell law it is contention, And as they yield reply, so give them still the lie. Tell fortune of her blindness, tell nature of decay, Tell friendship of unkindness, tell justice of delay, And if they dare reply, then give them all the lie. Tell arts they have no soundness, but vary by esteeming, Tell schools they want profoundness, and stand too much on seeming. If arts and schools reply, give arts and schools the lie. So when thou hast, as I, commanded thee, done blabbing, Although to give the lie deserves no less than stabbing, Yet stab at thee who will, no stab the soul can kill. Sir Walter Raleigh L'Envoy L'Envoy, by Rudyard Kipling, is a favourite on account of its sweeping assertion of the individual's right to self-development. When earth's last picture is painted, and the tubes are twisted and dried, 
when the oldest colours have faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest, and, faith, we shall need it, lie down for an aeon or two, till the master of all good workmen shall set us to work anew. And those who were good shall be happy, they shall sit in a golden chair, they shall splash at a ten-league canvas with brushes of comet's hair. They shall find real saints to draw from, Magdalen, Peter, and Paul. They shall work for an age at a sitting, and never be tired at all. And only the master shall praise us, and only the master shall blame. And no one shall work for money, and no one shall work for fame. But each for the joy of the working, and each in his separate star, shall draw the thing as he sees it, for the God of things as they are. Rudyard Kipling End of section 67 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 12, 2007 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 68 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. Contentment, The Harp That Once Through Tara's Halls, and The Old Oaken Bucket. Part 6 Continued. Contentment. Contentment by Edward Dyer, 1545-1607. This poem holds much to comfort and control people who are shut up to the joys of meditation, people to whom the world of activity is closed. To be independent of things material, this is the soul's pleasure. My mind to me a kingdom is, such perfect joy therein I find, as far excels all earthly bliss, that God or nature hath assigned. Though much I want that most would have, yet still my mind forbids to crave. Content I live, this is my stay, I seek no more than may suffice. I press to bear no haughty sway, look, what I lack my mind supplies. Lo, thus I triumph like a king, content with that my mind doth bring. I laugh not at another's loss, I grudge not at another's gain, No worldly wave my mind can toss, I brook that is another's bane. I fear no foe, nor fawn on friend, I loathe not life, nor dread mine end. My wealth is health and perfect ease, My conscience clear, my chief defence, I never seek by bribes to please, Nor by desert to give offence. Thus do I live, thus will I die, Would all did so as well as I. Edward Dyer The Harp That Once Through Tara's Halls The harp that once through Tara's halls The soul of music shed, Now hangs as mute on Tara's walls, As if that soul were fled. So sleeps the pride of former days, So glory's thrill is o'er, And hearts that once beat high for praise Now feel that pulse no more. No more to chiefs and ladies bright the harp of Tara swells, The chord alone that breaks at night Its tale of ruin tells. Thus freedom now so seldom wakes, The only throb she gives Is when some heart indignant breaks, To show that still she lives. Thomas More The Old Oaken Bucket 
The Old Oaken Bucket by Samuel Woodworth, 1785-1848, is a poem we love because it is an elegant expression of something very dear and homely. How dear to this heart are the scenes of my childhood, when fond recollection presents them to view! The orchard, the meadow, the deep-tangled wildwood, and every loved spot which my infancy knew! The wide-spreading pond, and the mill that stood by it, the bridge, and the rock where the cataract fell, the cot of my father, the dairy-house nigh it, and e'en the rude bucket that hung in the well, the old oaken bucket, the iron-bound bucket, the moss-covered bucket which hung in the well. That moss-covered vessel I hailed as a treasure, for often at noon, when returned from the field, I found it the source of an exquisite pleasure, the purest and sweetest that nature can yield. How ardent I seized it, with hands that were glowing, and quick to the white-pebbled bottom it fell, there soon, with the emblem of truth overflowing and dripping with coolness, it rose from the well. The old oaken bucket, the iron-bound bucket, the moss-covered bucket arose from the well. How sweet from the green mossy brim to receive it, as poised on the curb it inclined to my lips! Not a full blushing goblet could tempt me to leave it, the brightest that beauty or revelry sips. And now, far removed from the loved habitation, the tear of regret will intrusively swell, as fancy reverts to my father's plantation, and sighs for the bucket that hangs in the well, the old oaken bucket, the iron-bound bucket, the moss-covered bucket that hangs in the well. Samuel Woodworth End of section 68 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 13, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 69 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains just one poem, The Raven. Part 6 Continued The Raven The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, 1809-1849, is placed here because so many college men speak of it at once as the great poem of their boyhood. The poem caught me when a child by its refrain and weird picturesqueness. It has never outgrown its mechanical charm. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here for evermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, 
filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, this is it, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into my chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a rapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven, of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched above a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on that placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled by the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope this melancholy burden bore, of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. 
Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy into fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. Thus I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining, that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls twinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from my memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Be that our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back into the tempest, and the night's plutonian shore, leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken, leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door, take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, On the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor Shall be lifted nevermore. Edgar Allan Poe Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 13th, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt, section 70, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, Arnold von Winkelried. Part 6 continued. Arnold von Winkelried. Make way for liberty, he cried, make way for liberty, and died. In arms the Austrian phalanx stood, a living wall, a human wood, a wall where every conscious stone seemed to its kindred thousands grown, 
a rampart all assaults to bear, till time to dust their frame should wear. So still, so dense the Austrians stood, a living wall, a human wood. Impregnable their front appears, all horrent with projected spears, whose polished points before them shine from flank to flank one brilliant line, bright as the breakers' splendors run along the billows to the sun. Opposed to these a hovering band contended for their fatherland, peasants whose new-found strength had broke from manly necks the ignoble yoke, and beat their fetters into swords, on equal terms to fight their lords, and what insurgent rage had gained in many a mortal fray maintained, marshalled once more at freedom's call, they came to conquer or to fall, where he who conquered, he who fell, was deemed a dead or living tell. Such virtue had that patriot breathed, so to the soil his soul bequeathed, that wheresoe'er his arrows flew, heroes in his own likeness grew, and warriors sprang from every sod which his awakening footstep trod. And now the work of life and death hung on the passing of a breath. The fire of conflict burned within, the battle trembled to begin, yet while the Austrians held their ground, point for attack was nowhere found, where'er the impatient Switzers gazed, the unbroken line of lances blazed. That line t'were suicide to meet and perish at their tyrant's feet. How could they rest within their graves, and leave their homes, the homes of slaves? Would not they feel their children tread with clanging chains above their head? It must not be. This day, this hour, annihilates the invader's power. All Switzerland is in the field. She will not fly, she cannot yield, she must not fall. Her better fate here gives her an immortal date. Few were the numbers she could boast, but every freeman was a host, and felt as t'were a secret known, that one should turn the scale alone. While each unto himself was he on whose sole arm hung victory. It did depend on one indeed, behold him, Arnold Winkelried. There sounds not to the trump of fame the echo of a nobler name. Unmarked he stood amid the throng, in rumination deep and long, till you might see with sudden grace the very thought come o'er his face, and by the motion of his form anticipate the bursting storm, and by the uplifting of his brow tell where the bolt would strike and how. But t'was no sooner thought than done, the field was in a moment won. Make way for liberty, he cried, then ran with arms extended wide as if his dearest friend to clasp. Ten spears he swept within his grasp. Make way for liberty, he cried, their keen points crossed from side to side. He bowed amidst them like a tree, and thus made way for liberty. Swift to the breach his comrades fly. Make way for liberty, they cry, and through the Austrian phalanx dart, as rushed the spears through Arnold's heart, while instantaneous as his fall, rout, ruin, panic seized them all. An earthquake could not overthrow a city with a surer blow. Thus Switzerland again was free, thus death made way for liberty. James Montgomery End of section 70 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 13, 2007 
in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 71, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. Life, I Know Not What Thou Art. Mercy. Polonius's Advice. A Fragment from Mark Antony's Speech. And The Skylark. Part 6 continued. Life, I know not what thou art. Life, I know not what thou art, but know that thou and I must part, and when, or how, or where we met, I own to me's a secret yet. Life, we've been long together, through pleasant and through cloudy weather. Tis hard to part when friends are dear, perhaps twill cost a sigh, a tear. Then steal away, give little warning, Choose thine own time. Say not good night, but in some brighter clime, bid me good morning. A. L. Barbold. Mercy. Mercy, an excerpt from The Merchant of Venice, Polonius's advice from Hamlet, and Antony's speech from Julius Caesar, all fragments from Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616 find a place in this book because a well-known New York teacher, one who is unremitting in his efforts to raise the good taste and character of his pupils, says, A book of poetry could not be complete without these extracts. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. "'Tis mightiest in the mightiest. "'It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. "'His sceptre shows the force of temporal power, "'the attribute to awe and majesty, "'wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. "'But mercy is above his sceptred sway. "'It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. "'It is an attribute to God himself, "'and earthly power doth then show likest gods, "'when mercy seasons justice.' Shakespeare, from The Merchant of Venice. Polonius's Advice See thou character, give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought his act. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. The friends thou hast, and their adoption tried, grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel, but do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new-hatched, unfledged comrade. Beware of entrance to a quarrel, but, being in, bear it that the posed may beware of thee. Give every man thine ear, but few thy voice. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy for the apparel oft proclaims the man. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow, as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. 
Shakespeare, from Hamlet. A fragment from Mark Antony's speech. This was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought, and common good to all, made one of them. His life was gentle, and the elements so mixed in him, that nature might stand up and say to all the world, This was a man. Shakespeare, from Julius Caesar THE SKYLARK Bird of the wilderness, blithesome and cumberless, Sweet be thy matin o'er moorland and lea, Emblem of happiness, blessed is thy dwelling-place, O oh, to abide in the desert with thee! Wild is thy lay, and loud, far in the downy cloud, Love gives it energy, love gave it birth. Where on thy dewy wing, where art thou journeying? Thy lay is in heaven, thy love is on earth. O'er fell and fountain sheen, o'er moor and mountain green, O'er the red streamer that heralds the day, Over the cloudlet dim, over the rainbow's rim, Musical cherub, soar, singing away. Then, when the gloaming comes, low in the heather blooms, Sweet will thy welcome and bed of love be. Emblem of happiness, blessed is thy dwelling-place, O oh, to abide in the desert with thee. Thomas Hogg End of section 71, read by Kara Schallenberg, on January 13, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 72, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. The Choir Invisible The World is Too Much With Us Sonnet on His Blindness And She Was a Phantom of Delight Part 6 continued The Choir Invisible The Choir Invisible by George Eliot, 1819-1880, is a fitting exposition in poetry of this Shakespeare of Prose. Oh, may I join the choir invisible of those immortal dead who live again, in minds made better by their presence, live in pulses stirred to generosity, in deeds of daring rectitude, in scorn of miserable aims that end with self, in thoughts sublime that pierce the night like stars, and with their mild persistence urge men's minds to vaster issues. May I reach that purest heaven, be to other souls the cup of strength in some great agony, enkindle generous ardour, feed pure love, beget the smiles that have no cruelty, be the sweet presence of good diffused, and in diffusion evermore intense. So shall I join the choir invisible, whose music is the gladness of the world. George Eliot THE WORLD IS TOO MUCH WITH US 
The World is Too Much With Us by Wordsworth, 1770-1850, is perhaps the greatest sonnet ever written. It is true that the eyes of the soul are blinded by a surfeit of worldly goods. I went to the Lake District, England, said John Burroughs, to see what kind of a country could produce a Wordsworth. Of course he found simple houses, simple people, barren moors, heather-clad mountains, wild flowers, calm lakes, plain, rugged simplicity. The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune, it moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan, suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lea, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his weathered horn. William Wordsworth On His Blindness Sonnet on His Blindness by John Milton, 1608-1674 This is the most stately and pathetic sonnet in existence, the soul enduring enforced idleness and loss of power without repining, inactivity made to serve a higher end. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days, in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my Maker, and present my true account, lest he, returning, chide. Doth God exact day labour, light denied? I fondly ask, but patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve, who only stand and wait. John Milton She was a phantom of delight. She was a phantom of delight, by William Wordsworth, 1770-1850, to is included here because it is a picture of woman as she should be, not made dainty by finery, but by fine ideals. She was a phantom of delight when first she gleamed upon my sight, a lovely apparition sent to be a moment's ornament. Her eyes as stars of twilight fair, like twilight's too her dusky hair, but all things else about her drawn from May-time and the cheerful dawn, a dancing shape, an image gay, to haunt, to startle, and waylay. I saw her, upon nearer view, a spirit, yet a woman, too, her household motions light and free, and steps of virgin liberty, a countenance in which did meet sweet records, promises as sweet, a creature not too bright or good for human nature's daily food, for transient sorrows, simple wiles, 
praise, blame, love, kisses, tears, and smiles. And now I see with eye serene the very pulse of the machine, a being breathing thoughtful breath, a traveller between life and death, the reason firm, the temperate will, endurance, foresight, strength, and skill, a perfect woman, nobly planned, to warn, to comfort, and command, and yet a spirit still and bright with something of angelic light. William Wordsworth End of section 72 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 14, 2007 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 73, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Part 6 continued. Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. I once drove home from Windsor Castle through Eton, down the long hedge-bound road which passes the estate of William Penn's descendants to Stoke Pogus, the little churchyard where this poem was written. They were trimming a great yew-tree under which Gray was said to have written this poem. The scene is one of peace and quiet. The elegy was a favourite form of poem with the ancients, but Gray is said to have reached the climax among poets in this style of verse. The great line of the poem is, the path of glory leads but to the grave. It would almost seem that poetry has for its greatest mission the lesson of proper humility. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day, The lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lea, The ploughman homeward plods his weary way, And leaves the world to darkness and to me. Now fades the glimmering landscape on the sight, And all the air a solemn stillness holds, Save where the beetle wheels his droning flight, And drowsy tinklings lull the distant folds. Save that from yonder ivy-mantled tower The moping owl does to the moon complain, Of such as, wandering near her secret bower, Molest her ancient solitary reign. Beneath those rugged elms, that yew-tree's shade, Where heaves the turf in many a mouldering heap, Each in his narrow cell for ever laid, The rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep. The breezy call of incense-breathing morn, The swallow twittering from the straw-built shed, The cock's shrill clarion, or the echoing horn No more shall rouse them from their lowly bed. For them no more the blazing hearth shall burn, Or busy housewife ply her evening care. No children run to lisp their sire's return, Or climb his knees the envied kiss to share. Oft did the harvest to their sickle yield, Their furrow oft the stubborn glebe has broke. How jocund did they drive their team afield, How bowed the woods beneath their sturdy stroke. Let not ambition mock their useful toil, their homely joys and destiny obscure, nor grandeur here with a disdainful smile the short and simple annals of the poor. 
the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, await alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Forgive, ye proud, the involuntary fault, if memory to these no trophies raise, where through the long-drawn aisle and fretted vault the pealing anthem swells the note of praise. Can storied urn or animated bust back to its mansion call the fleeting breath? Can honour's voice provoke the silent dust, or flattery soothe the dull cold ear of death? Perhaps in this neglected spot is laid some heart once pregnant with celestial fire, hands that the rod of empire might have swayed, or waked to ecstasy the living lyre. But knowledge to their eyes her ample page, rich with the spoils of time, did ne'er unroll. Chill penury repressed their noble rage, and froze the genial current of the soul. Full many a gem of purest ray serene the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen, and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Some village, Hampton, that with dauntless breast, the little tyrant of his fields withstood, some mute inglorious Milton here may rest, some Cromwell guiltless of his country's blood. The applause of listening senates to command, the threats of pain and ruin to despise, to scatter plenty o'er a smiling land, and read their history in a nation's eyes. Their lot forbade, nor circumscribed alone, their growing virtues but their crimes confined, forbade to wade through slaughter to a throne, and shut the gates of mercy on mankind. The struggling pangs of conscious truth to hide, to quench the blushes of ingenuous shame, or heap the shrine of luxury and pride with incense kindled at the muse's flame. Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, their sober wishes never learned to stray. Along the cool sequestered vale of life they kept the noiseless tenor of their way. Yet e'en those bones from insult to protect some frail memorial still erected nigh with uncouth rhymes and shapeless sculpture decked, implores the passing tribute of a sigh. Their name, their years, spelt by the unlettered muse, the place of fame and elegy supply, and many a holy text around she strews that teach the rustic moralist to die. For who to dumb forgetfulness a prey, this pleasing anxious being e'er resigned, left the warm precincts of the cheerful day, nor cast one longing lingering look behind? On some fond breast the parting soul relies, some pious drops the closing eye requires. E'en from the tomb the voice of nature cries, E'en in our ashes live their wonted fires. For thee, who, mindful of the unhonoured dead, Dost in these lines their artless tale relate, If chance by lonely contemplation led Some kindred spirit shall inquire thy fate. Haply some hoary-headed swain may say, Oft have we seen him at the peep of dawn, Brushing with hasty steps the dews away, To meet the sun upon the upland lawn. There at the foot of yonder nodding beech, That wreathes its old fantastic roots so high, his listless length at noontide would he stretch, and pour upon the brook that babbles by. 
Hard by yon wood, now smiling as in scorn, Muttering his wayward fancies he would rove, Now drooping, woeful wan, like one forlorn, Or crazed with care, or crossed in hopeless love. One morn I missed him on the customed hill, Along the heath and near his favourite tree. Another came, nor yet beside the rill, Nor up the lawn, nor at the wood was he. The next with dirges due in sad array, Slow through the church-way path we saw him borne. Approach, and read, for thou canst read the lay, Graved on the stone beneath yon aged thorn. THE EPITAPH Here rests his head upon the lap of earth A youth to fortune and to fame unknown. Fair science frowned not on his humble birth, And melancholy marked him for her own. Large was his bounty, and his soul sincere. Heaven did a recompense as largely send. He gave to misery all he had, a tear. He gained from heaven, t'was all he wished, a friend. No farther seek his merits to disclose, Or draw his frailties from their dread abode. There they alike in trembling hope repose, The bosom of his father and his God. Thomas Gray End of section 73 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 14, 2007 In Oceanside, California Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 74 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg this section contains just one poem, Rabbi Ben Ezra. Part 6 continued. Rabbi Ben Ezra by Robert Browning, 1812-1889 Youth is for dispute, and age for counsel. Each year, each period of a man's life is but the necessary step to the next. Youth is an uncertain thing to bank on. Rabbi Ben Ezra is a plea for each period in life. Aspiration is the keynote. Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made. Our times are in his hand, who saith, A whole I planned, youth shows but half, trust God, see all nor be afraid. Not that amassing flowers youth sighed, which rose make ours, which lily leave, and then as best recall? Not that, admiring stars, it yearned, nor Jove nor Mars, mine be some figured flame which blends, transcends them all. Not for such hopes and fears, annulling youth's brief years, do I remonstrate, folly wide the mark. Rather I prize the doubt, low kinds exist without, finished and finite clods, untroubled by a spark. Poor vaunt of life, indeed, were man but formed to feed, on joy to solely seek and find and feast. Such feasting ended then, as sure an end to men, irks care the cropful bird, frets doubt the maw-crammed beast. Rejoice we are allied to that which doth provide, and not partake, effect, and not receive, a spark disturbs our clod, nearer we hold of God who gives, than of his tribes that take I must believe. 
Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough, each sting that bids nor sit nor stand but go. Be our joys three parts pain, strive and hold cheap the strain, learn nor account the pang, dare never grudge the throw. For thence a paradox which comforts while it mocks, shall life succeed in that it seems to fail. What I aspired to be, and was not, comforts me. A brute I might have been, but would not sink i' the scale. What is he but a brute, whose flesh has soul to suit, Whose spirit works lest arms and legs want play? To man propose this test, thy body at its best, How far can that project thy soul on its lone way? Yet gifts should prove their use, I own the past profuse, of power each side, perfection every turn. Eyes, ears took in their dole, brain treasured up the whole. Should not the heart beat once, how good to live and learn. Not once beat, praise be thine, I see the whole design. I, who saw power, see now love perfect too. Perfect I call thy plan, thanks that I was a man. Maker, remake, complete, I trust what thou shalt do. For pleasant is this flesh, our soul in its rose-mesh, pulled ever to the earth, still yearns for rest. Would we some prize might hold, to match those manifold possessions of the brute, gain most as we did best? Let us not always say, spite of this flesh to-day, I strove, made head, gained ground upon the whole. As the bird wings and sings, let us cry, all good things are ours, nor soul helps flesh more now than flesh helps soul. Therefore I summon age, to grant youth's heritage, life's struggle having so far reached its term. Thence shall I pass approved, a man for I removed, from the developed brute, a god though in the germ. And I shall thereupon take rest, ere I be gone, once more on my adventure brave and new. Fearless and unperplexed, when I wage battle next, what weapons to select, what armour to endue. Youth ended, I shall try my gain or loss thereby, leave the fire ashes, what survives is gold. And I shall weigh the same, give life its praise or blame, young all lay in dispute, I shall know being old. For note, when evening shuts, a certain moment cuts the deed off, calls the glory from the grey. A whisper from the west shoots, add this to the rest, take it and try its worth, here dies another day. So still within this life, though lifted o'er its strife, let me discern, compare, pronounce at last. This rage was right, in the main, that acquiescence vain, the future I may face now I have proved the past. For more is not reserved to man with soul just nerved to act to-morrow what he learns to-day. Here work enough to watch the master work and catch hints of the proper craft, tricks of the tool's true play. As it was better, youth should strive, through acts uncouth toward making than repose on aught found made, so better age exempt from strife should know than tempt further. Thou waitedest age, wait death nor be afraid. 
Enough now, if the right and good and infinite be named here, as thou callest thy hand thine own, with knowledge absolute, subject to no dispute, from fools that crowded youth, nor let thee feel alone. Be there, for once and all, severed great minds from small, announced to each his station in the past. Was I the world arraigned, were they my soul disdained, right? Let age speak the truth, and give us peace at last. Now who shall arbitrate, ten men love what I hate, shun what I follow, slight what I receive? Ten, who in ears and eyes match me, we all surmise, they this thing and I that, whom shall my soul believe? Not on the vulgar mass called work must sentence pass, things done that took the eye and had the price, o'er which from level stand the low world laid its hand, found straightway to its mind could value in a trice. But all the world's coarse thumb and finger failed to plumb so passed in making up the main account. All instincts immature, all purposes unsure, that weighed not at his work, yet swelled the man's amount. Thoughts hardly to be packed into a narrow act, fancies that broke through language and escaped. All I could never be, all men ignored in me, this I was worth to God, whose wheel the pitcher shaped. I note that potter's wheel, that metaphor, and feel why time spins fast, why passive lies our clay. Thou, to whom fools propound, when the wine makes its round, since life fleets, all is change, the past gone, seize to-day. Fool, all that is at all lasts ever, past recall, earth changes, but thy soul and God stand sure. What entered into thee, that was, is, and shall be, Time's wheel runs back or stops, potter and clay endure. He fixed thee mid this dance of plastic circumstance, this present thou forsooth wouldst fain arrest. Machinery just meant to give thy soul its bent, try thee and turn thee forth, sufficiently impressed. What though the earlier grooves which ran the laughing loves around thy base no longer pause and press? What though about thy rim, skull things in order grim, grow out in graver mood, obey the sterner stress? Look not thou down, but up, to uses of a cup, the festal board, lamps flash and trumpets peal. The new wine's foaming flow, the master's lips aglow, thou heaven's consummate cup, what need'st thou with earth's wheel? But I need, now as then, thee, God, who mouldest men, and since not even while the whirl was worst did I, to the wheel of life, with shapes and colours rife, bound dizzily, mistake my end to slake thy thirst. So take and use thy work, amend what flaws may lurk, what strain o' the stuff, what warpings pass the aim. My times be in thy hand, perfect the cup as planned, lest age approve of youth, and death complete the same. Robert Browning End of section 74 Read by Karish Allenberg on January 14th, 2007 in Oceanside, California
Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 75, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains the following poems. Prospice, Recessional, and Ozymandias of Egypt. Part 6 continued. Prospice. Prospice by Robert Browning, 1812 to 1889, is the greatest death song ever written. It is a battle song and a pan of victory. This poem is included in this book because these lines are enough to reconcile any one to any fate. Fear death, to feel the fog in my throat, the mist in my face, when the snows begin and the blasts denote, I am nearing the place. The power of the night, the press of the storm, the post of the foe. Where he stands, the arch-fear in a visible form, yet the strong man must go. For the journey is done, and the summit attained, and the barriers fall. Though a battle's to fight, ere a guerdon be gained, the reward of it all. I was ever a fighter, so one fight more, the best and the last. I would hate that death bandaged my eyes, and forbore, and bade me creep past. No, let me taste the whole of it, fare like my peers, the heroes of old. Bear the brunt, in a minute pay glad life's arrears of pain, darkness, and cold. For sudden the worst turns the best to the brave, the black minutes at end, and the elements rage, the fiend voices that rave, shall dwindle, shall blend, shall change, shall become first a peace out of pain, then a light, then thy breast. O thou soul of my soul, I shall clasp thee again, and with God be the rest. Robert Browning Recessional The Recessional by Rudyard Kipling is one of the most popular poems of this century. It is a warning to an age and a nation drunk with power, a rebuke to materialistic tendencies and boastfulness, a protest against pride. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle-line, Beneath whose awful hand we hold Dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, Lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, The captains and the kings depart, Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, An humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, Lest we forget lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. If, drunk with the sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boasting as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust, and guarding calls not thee to guard, for frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. Amen. Rudyard Kipling. 
Ozymandias of Egypt. Ozymandias of Egypt by Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1792-1822. This sonnet is a rebuke to the insolent pride of kings and empires. It is extremely picturesque. It finds a place here because more elderly scholars of good judgment are pleased with it. I remember an old grey-haired scholar in Chicago who often recited it to his friends merely because it touched his fancy. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Percy Bysshe Shelley End of section 75 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 14, 2007 in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Section 76 Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg This section contains two poems, Mortality and On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer. Part six continued. Mortality. Mortality by William Knox, seventeen eighty nine to eighteen twenty five, is always quoted as Lincoln's favorite poem. Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud, like a fast flitting meteor, a fast flying cloud? A flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, he passes from life to his rest in the grave. The leaves of the oak and the willow shall fade be scattered around, and together be laid, and the young and the old, and the low and the high, shall moulder to dust, and together shall lie. The child that a mother attended and loved, the mother that infant's affection that proved, the husband that mother and infant that blessed, each all are away to their dwelling of rest. The maid on whose cheek, on whose brow, in whose eye, shone beauty and pleasure, her triumphs are by, and the memory of those that beloved her and praised are alike from the minds of the living erased. The hand of the king that the sceptre hath borne, the brow of the priest that the mitre hath worn, the eye of the sage and the heart of the brave are hidden and lost in the depths of the grave. The peasant whose lot was to sow and to reap, the herdsman who climbed with his goats to the steep, the beggar that wandered in search of his bread, have faded away, like the grass that we tread. The saint that enjoyed the communion of heaven, the sinner that dared to remain unforgiven, the wise and the foolish, the guilty and just, have quietly mingled their bones in the dust. So the multitude goes, like the flower and the weed, that wither away to let others succeed, 
so the multitude comes, even those we behold, to repeat every tale that hath often been told. For we are the same that our fathers have been, we see the same sights that our fathers have seen, we drink the same stream, and we feel the same sun, and we run the same course that our fathers have run. The thoughts we are thinking our fathers would think, from the death we are shrinking from, they too would shrink. To the life we are clinging to, they too would cling, but it speeds from the earth, like a bird on the wing. They loved, but their story we cannot unfold. They scorned, but the heart of the haughty is cold. They grieved, but no wail from their slumbers may come. They enjoyed, but the voice of their gladness is dumb. They died, ay, they died, and we things that are now who walk on the turf that lies over their brow, who make in their dwellings a transient abode, meet the changes they met on their pilgrimage road. Yea, hope and despondence and pleasure and pain are mingled together like sunshine and rain, and the smile and the tear and the song and the dirge still follow each other like surge upon surge. Tis the wink of an eye, tis the draught of a breath, from the blossom of health to the paleness of death, from the gilded saloon to the bier and the shroud, oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? William Knox On first looking into Chapman's Homer By John Keats, 1795-1821 to the last four lines of this sonnet form the most tremendous climax in literature. The picture is as vivid as if done with a brush. Every great book, every great poem is a new world, an undiscovered country. Every learned person is a whole territory, a universe of new thought. Every one who does anything with a heart for it, every specialist, every one, however simple, who is strenuous and genuine, is a new discovery. Let us give credit to the smallest planet that is true to its own orbit. Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his domain. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene, Till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies, When a new planet swims into his ken, Or like stout Cortez, when, with eagle eyes, He stared at the Pacific, And all his men looked at each other With a wild surmise, silent, upon a peak in Darien. John Keats. End of section seventy six. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January fourteenth, two thousand seven, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section seventy seven. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, Herve Real. Part six continued. 
Hervarill by Robert Browning, 1812-1889, is a poem for older boys. Here is a hero who does a great deed simply as a part of his day's work. He puts no value on what he has done, because he could have done no other way. On the sea and at the Hogue, 1692, did the English fight the French, woe to France. And the 31st of May, helter-skelter through the blue, like a crowd of frightened porpoises a shoal of sharks pursue, came crowding ship on ship to St. Malo on the Rance, with the English fleet in view. T'was the squadron that escaped, with the victor in full chase, first and foremost of the drove, in his great ship Damfraville. Close on him fled, great and small, twenty-two good ships in all, and they signalled to the place, "'Help the winners of a race! Get us guidance, give us harbour, take us quick, or quicker still, here's the English can and will!' Then the pilots of the place put out brisk and leaped on board, why, what hope or chance have ships like these to pass? laughed they. Rocks to starboard, rocks to port, all the passage scarred and scored. Shall the formidable here, with her twelve and eighty guns, think to make the river mouth by the single narrow way? Trust to enter where tis ticklish for a craft of twenty tons, and with flow at full beside? Now tis slackest ebb of tide. Reach the mooring, rather say, while rock stands or water runs, not a ship will leave the bay. Then was called the council straight, brief and bitter the debate, Here's the English at our heels, would you have them take in tow all that's left us of the fleet, linked together stern and bow, for a prize to Plymouth Sound? Better run the ships aground. Ended Damfraville his speech. Not a minute more to wait, let the captains all and each shove ashore, then blow up, burn the vessels on the beach. France must undergo her fate. Give the word. But no such word was ever spoke or heard, for up stood, for out stepped, for in struck amid all these, a captain, a lieutenant, a mate, first, second, third, no such man of mark and meet with his betters to compete, but a simple Breton sailor pressed by Tourville for the fleet. A poor coasting pilot he, Hervarill, the Classiques. And what mockery or malice have we here? cries Hervarill. Are you mad, you Malouines? Are you cowards, fools, or rogues? Talk to me of rocks and shoals, me who took the soundings. Tell on my fingers every bank, every shallow, every swell, Twixt the offing here, and grieve where the river disembogues. Are you bought by English gold? Is it love the lying's for? Morn and eve, night and day, have I piloted your bay, Entered free and anchored fast at the foot of Solidor. Burn the fleet and ruin France, that were worse than fifty hogs. Sirs, they know I speak the truth, sirs, believe me, there's a way. Only let me lead the line, have the biggest ship to steer, get this formidable clear, make the others follow mine. And I lead them, most and least, by a passage I know well, right to Solidor, past Grieve, and there lay them safe and sound, and if one ship misbehave, keel so much as great the ground, why, I've nothing but my life, here's my head, cries Hervarill. Not a minute more to wait, 
"'Steer us in, then, small and great. "'Take the helm, lead the line, save the squadron,' cried its chief. "'Captains, give the sailor place. "'He is admiral, in brief. "'Still the north wind, by God's grace. "'See the noble fellow's face, as the big ship, with a bound, "'clears the entry like a hound. "'Keeps the passage as its inch of way, "'where the wide sea's profound. "'See, safe through shoal and rock, how they follow in a flock.' Not a ship that misbehaves, not a keel that grates the ground, not a spar that comes to grief. The peril, see, is past, all are harboured to the last, and just as Hervareel hollers anchor, sure as fate, up the English come, too late. So the storm subsides to calm, they see the green trees wave on the heights o'erlooking grave, hearts that bled are stanched with balm, just our rapture to enhance, let the English rake the bay, gnash their teeth and glare askance, as they cannonade away. Neath rampired Solidor, pleasant riding on the rance, how hope succeeds despair on each captain's countenance. Outburst all with one accord, this is paradise for hell, let France, let France's king thank the man that did the thing. What a shout, and all one word, Hervareel! As he stepped in front once more, not a symptom of surprise in the frank blue Breton eyes, just the same man as before. Then said Damfreville, My friend, I must speak out at the end, though I find the speaking hard. Praise is deeper than the lips, you have saved the king his ships, you must name your own reward. Faith, our sun was near eclipse, demand whate'er you will, France remains your debtor still. Ask to heart's content, and have, or my name's not Damfreville. Then a beam of fun outbroke on the bearded mouth that spoke, as the honest heart laughed through those frank eyes of Breton blue. Since I needs must say my say, since on board the duty's done, and from Mallow Roads to Croisic Point, what is it but a run? Since tis ask and have, I may, since the others go ashore, come, a good whole holiday, Leave to go and see my wife, whom I call the Belle Aurore. That he asked, and that he got, nothing more. Name and deed alike are lost, not a pillar nor a post in his croisic keeps alive the feet as it befell. Not a head in white and black on a single fishing smack in memory of the man, but for whom had gone to rack all that France saved from the fight whence England bore the bell. Go to Paris, rank on rank, search the heroes flung pell-mell on the Louvre, face and flank. You shall look long enough ere you come to Hervareel. So, for better and for worse, Hervareel, accept my verse. In my verse, Hervareel, do thou once more. Save the squadron, honour France, love thy wife, the belle Aurore. Robert Browning End of section 77. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 15, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 78. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. 
This section contains two poems, The Problem and To America. Part 6 continued. The Problem The Problem, by Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803-1880, is quoted from one end of the world to the other. Emerson teaches one lesson above all others, that each soul must work out for itself its latent force, its own individual expression, and that with a sad sincerity. The bishop of the soul can do no more. I like a church, I like a cowl, I love a prophet of the soul, And on my heart monastic aisles Fall like sweet strains or pensive smiles. Yet not for all his faith can see Would I that cowled churchman be. Why should the vest on him allure Which I could not on me endure? Not from a vain or shallow thought His awful Jove young Phidias brought, Never from lips of cunning fell The thrilling Delphic oracle. Out from the heart of nature rolled The burdens of the Bible old. The litanies of nations came, Like the volcano's tongue of flame, Up from the burning core below, The canticles of love and woe. The hand that rounded Peter's dome And groined the aisles of Christian Rome Wrought in a sad certainty, Himself from God he could not free, He builded better than he knew, The conscious stone to beauty grew. Knowst thou what wove yon woodbird's nest Of leaves and feathers from her breast? Or how the fish outbuilt her shell, Painting with morn each annual cell? Or how the sacred pine-tree adds To her old leaves new myriads? Such and so grew these holy piles, While love and terror laid the tiles Earth proudly wears the Parthenon, As the best gem upon her zone, And morning opes with haste her lids To gaze upon the pyramids. O'er England's abbeys bends the sky, As on its friends with kindred eye, For out of thought's interior sphere These wonders rose to upper air, And nature gladly gave them place, Adopted them into her race, and granted them an equal date, with Andes and with Ararat. These temples grew as grows the grass, art might obey, but not surpass. The passive master lent his hand to the vast soul that o'er him planned, and the same power that reared the shrine bestrode the tribes that knelt within. Ever the fiery Pentecost girds with one flame the countless host, Trances the heart through chanting choirs, And through the priest the mind inspires. The word unto the prophet spoken Was writ on tables yet unbroken. The word by seers or sibyls told In groves of oak or fanes of gold Still floats upon the morning wind, Still whispers to the willing mind. One accent of the Holy Ghost The heedless world hath never lost. I know what say the fathers wise, the book itself before me lies, old Chrysostom, best Augustine, and he who blent both in his line, the younger golden lips or minds, Taylor, the Shakespeare of divines. His words are music in my ear, I see his cowled portrait dear, and yet for all his faith could see, I would not the good bishop be. Ralph Waldo Emerson To America to America, included by permission of the Poet Laureate, is a good poem and a great poem. 
It is a keen thrust at the common practice of teaching American children to hate the English of these days, on account of the actions of a silly old king dead a hundred years. Alfred Austin deserves great credit for this poem. What is the voice I hear on the winds of the western sea? Sentinel, listen from out Cape Clear, and say what the voice may be. Tis a proud free people calling loud, to a people proud and free. And it says to them, Kinsmen, hail, we severed have been too long. Now let us have done with a worn-out tale, the tale of an ancient wrong. And our friendship last long as our love doth, and be stronger than death is strong. Answer them, sons of the self-same race, and blood of the self-same clan. Let us speak with each other face to face, and answer as man to man and loyally love and trust each other as none but free men can. Now fling them out to the breeze, shamrock, thistle, and rose, and the star-spangled banner unfurl with these, a message to friends and foes. Wherever the sails of peace are seen, and wherever the war-wind blows. A message to bond and thrall to wake, for wherever we come we twain, the throne of the tyrant shall rock and quake, and his menace be void and vain. For you are lords of a strong land, and we are lords of the main. Yes, this is the voice of the bluff March gale, we severed have been too long. But now we have done with a worn-out tale, the tale of an ancient wrong. And our friendship last long as love doth last, and stronger than death is strong. Alfred Austin End of section 78. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 15, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Poems Every Child Should Know. Edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 79. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem. THE ENGLISH FLAG Part 6 continued THE ENGLISH FLAG It is quite true that the English flag stands for freedom the world over. Wherever it floats almost anyone is safe, whether English or not. Winds of the world give answer, they are whimpering to and fro, and what should they know of England, who only England know? The poor little street-bred people that vapour and fume and brag, they are lifting their heads in the stillness to yelp at the English flag. Must we borrow a clout from the boar to plaster anew with dirt, an Irish liar's bandage or an English coward's shirt? We may not speak of England, her flags to sell or share. What is the flag of England? Winds of the world declare. The north wind blew. From Bergen my steel-shod vanguards go, I chase your lazy whalers home from the disco flow. By the great north lights above me I work the will of God, That the liner splits on the ice-field, or the dogger fills with cod. I barred my gates with iron, I shuttered my doors with flame, Because to force my ramparts your nutshell navies came. I took the sun from their presence, I cut them down with my blast, and they died, but the flag of England blew free ere the spirit passed. The lean white bear hath seen it in the long, long arctic night. The musk-ox knows the standard that flouts the northern light, 
what is the flag of England? Ye have but my bergs to dare, ye have but my drifts to conquer, go forth, for it is there. The south wind sighed, from the virgins my mid-sea course was tan, over a thousand islands lost in an idle main, where the sea-egg flames on the coral, and the long-backed breakers croon their endless ocean legends to the lazy-locked lagoon. Strayed amid lonely islets, mazed amid outer keys, I waked the palms to laughter, I tossed the scud in the breeze. Never was isle so little, never was sea so lone, but over the scud and the palm-trees an English flag was known. I have wrenched it free from the halyard to hang for a wisp on the horn. I have chased it north to the lizard, ribboned and rolled and torn. I have spread its fold o'er the dying adrift in a hopeless sea. I have hurled it swift on the salver, and seen the slave set free. My basking sunfish know it, and wheeling albatross, where the lone wave fills with fire beneath the southern cross. What is the flag of England? Ye have but my reefs to dare, ye have but my seas to furrow, go forth, for it is there. The east wind roared, From the curlies, the bitter seas, I come, and me men call the home wind, for I bring the English home. Look, look well to your shipping, by the breath of my mad typhoon I swept your close-packed praya, and beached your best at Kowloon. The reeling junks behind me, and the racing seas before, I raped your richest roadstead, I plundered Singapore. I set my hand on the hoogly, as a hooded snake she rose, and I flung your stoutest steamers to roost with the startled crows. Never the lotus closes, never the wild fowl wake, but a soul goes out on the east wind that died for England's sake. Man or woman or suckling, mother or bride or maid, because on the bones of the English the English flag is stayed. The desert dust hath dimmed it, the flying wild ass knows, the scared white leopard winds it across the taintless snows. What is the flag of England? Ye have but my son to dare, ye have but my sands to travel, go forth, for it is there. The west wind called, in squadrons the thoughtless galleons fly that bear the wheat and cattle, lest street-bred people die. They make my might their porter, they make my house their path, till I loose my neck from their rudder and whelm them all in my wrath. I draw the gliding fog-bank as a snake is drawn from the hole, they bellow one to the other, the frightened ship-bells toll. For day is a drifting terror till I raise the shroud with my breath, and they see strange boughs above them and the two go locked to death. But whether in calm or rack-wreath, whether by dark or day, I heave them whole to the conger, or rip their plates away, first of the scattered legions, under a shrieking sky, dipping between the rollers, the English flag goes by. The dead dumb fog hath wrapped it, the frozen dews have kissed, the naked stars have seen it, a fellow-star in the mist. What is the flag of England? Ye have but my breath to dare, ye have but my waves to conquer. Go forth, for it is there. Rudyard Kipling End of section 79 Read by Kara Schallenberg On January 15, 2007 In Oceanside, California
Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 80, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains just one poem, The Man with the Hoe. Part 6 continued. The Man with the Hoe. The Man with the Hoe is purely an American product, and every American ought to be proud of it, for we want no such type allowed to be developed in this country as the low-browed peasant of France. This poem is a stroke of genius. The story goes that it so offended a modern plutocrat that he offered a reward of ten thousand dollars to anyone who could write an equally good poem in rebuttal. The man with the hoe has won for Edward Markham the title of Poet Laureate of the Labouring Classes. Written after seeing the painting by Millet. God made man in his own image, in the image of God made he him. Genesis. Bowed by the weight of centuries, he leans upon his hoe and gazes on the ground, the emptiness of ages in his face, and on his back the burden of the world. Who made him dead to rapture and despair, a thing that grieves not, and that never hopes, stolid and stunned, a brother to the ox? Who loosened and let down this brutal jaw? Whose was the hand that slanted back this brow, whose breath blew out the light within this brain? Is this the thing the Lord God made and gave to have dominion over sea and land, to trace the stars and search the heavens for power, to feel the passion of eternity? Is this the dream he dreamed who shaped the suns and marked their ways upon the ancient deep? Down all the stretch of hell to its last gulf there is no shape more terrible than this, more tongued with censure of the world's blind greed, more filled with signs and portents for the soul, more fraught with menace to the universe. What gulfs between him and the seraphim, slave of the wheel of labour, what to him are Plato and the swing of Pleiades? What the long reaches of the peaks of song, the rift of dawn, the reddening of the rose? Through this dread shape the suffering ages look, time's tragedy is in that aching stoop. Through this dread shape humanity betrayed, plundered, profaned, and disinherited, cries protest to the judges of the world, a protest that is also prophecy. O masters, lords, and rulers in all lands, is this the handiwork you give to God, this monstrous thing distorted and soul-quenched? How will you ever straighten up this shape, touch it again with immortality, give back the upward-looking and the light, rebuild in it the music and the dream, make right the immemorial infamies, perfidious wrongs, immedicable woes? O masters, lords, and rulers in all lands, how will the future reckon with this man, how answer his brute question in that hour when whirlwinds of rebellion shake the world? How will it be with kingdoms and with kings, with those who shaped him to the thing he is, when this dumb terror shall reply to God after the silence of the centuries? Edwin Markham End of section 80 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 15, 2007, in Oceanside, California.
Poems Every Child Should Know, edited by Mary E. Burt. Section 81, read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. This section contains one poem, Song of Myself. Part 6 continued. Song of Myself. The Song of Myself is one of Walt Whitman's most characteristic poems. I love the swing and the stride of his great long lines. I love his rough-shod way of trampling down and kicking out of the way the conventionalities that spring up like poisonous mushrooms to make the world a vast labyrinth of petty proprieties until everything is nasty. I love the oxygen he pours on the world. I love his genius for brotherliness, his picture of the negro with rolling eyes and the firelock in the corner. These excerpts are some of his best lines. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul, I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same, and their parents the same. I, now thirty-seven years old, in perfect health begin, hoping to cease not till death. I harbour for good or bad, I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, the original energy. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practised so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the spectres in books. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides, and filter them from yourself. A child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven, or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrance designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners, that we may see and remark and say, Whose? Alone, far in the wilds and mountains I hunt, wandering amazed at my own lightness and glee, in the late afternoon choosing a safe spot to pass the night, kindling a fire and broiling the fresh-killed game, falling asleep on the gathered leaves with my dog and gun by my side. The Yankee clipper is under her sky-sails, she cuts the sparkle and scud, my eyes settle the land, I bend at her prow, or shout joyously from the deck. The boatman and clam-diggers arose early and stopped for me. I tucked my trouser-ends in my boots, and went, and had a good time. You should have been with us that day, round the chowder-kettle. The runaway slave came to my house, and stopped outside. I heard his motions crackling the twigs of the woodpile. Through the swung half-door of the kitchen I saw him, limpsy and weak, 
and went where he sat on a log, and led him in, and assured him, and brought water, and filled a tub for his sweated body and bruised feet, and gave him a room that entered from my own, and gave him some coarse clean clothes, and remember perfectly well his revolving eyes and his awkwardness, and remember putting plasters on the galls of his neck and ankles. He stayed with me a week before he was recuperated and passed north. I had him sit next to me at table. My firelock leaned in the corner. I am the poet of the woman, the same as the man, and I say it is as great to be a woman as to be a man, and I say there is nothing greater than the mother of men. I understand the large hearts of heroes, the courage of present times and all times, how the skipper saw the crowded and rudderless wreck of the steamship, and death chasing it up and down the storm, how he knuckled tight and gave not back an inch, and was faithful of days and faithful of nights, and chalked in large letters on a board, Be of good cheer, we will not desert you how he followed them, and tacked with them three days, and would not give it up, how he saved the drifting company at last, how the lank, loose-gowned women looked when boated from the side of their prepared graves, how the silent old-faced infants, and the lifted sick, and the sharp-lipped unshaved men. All this I swallow, it tastes good, I like it well, it becomes mine, I am the man, I suffered, I was there." the disdain and calmness of martyrs, the mother of old, condemned for a witch, burned with dry wood, her children gazing on, the hounded slave that flags in the race, leans by the fence blowing, covered with sweat. I am the hounded slave, I wince at the bite of the dogs. Hell and despair are upon me, crack and again crack the marksmen. I clutch the rails of the fence, my gored ribs thinned with the ooze of my skin. I fall on the weeds and stones. The riders spur their unwilling horses, haul close, taunt my dizzy ears, and beat me violently over the head with whip-stocks. Old age, superbly rising, O oh, welcome, ineffable grace of dying days! See ever so far, there is limitless space outside of that, count ever so much, there is limitless time around that. My rendezvous is appointed, it is certain. The Lord will be there, and wait, till I come on perfect terms. The great camarado, the true lover, for whom I pine, will be there. And whoever walks a furlong without sympathy, walks to his own funeral, dressed in his shroud." and to glance with an eye or show a bean in its pod confounds the learning of all times. And there is no trade or employment, but the young man following it may become a hero. And there is no object so soft, but it makes a hub for the wheeled universe. And I say to any man or woman, Let your soul stand cool and composed before a million universes. I see something of God each hour of the twenty-four, and each moment, then, in the faces of men and women, I see God, and in my own face, in the glass, I find letters from God dropped in the street, and every one is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are, for I know that wheresoe'er I go, others will punctually come, forever and ever. Listener up there, 
what have you to confide in me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly, no one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Who has done his day's work? Who will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. Walt Whitman End of section 81 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On January 15, 2007 In Oceanside, California And the end of the entire book Poems Every Child Should Know Edited by Mary E. Burt Published in 1904「BetMGM」has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.